You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Have you ever heard of the movie City of God? Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, but, you know, that that's supposed to be, you know, send, you know sending a message to somebody about, hey, uh, you know, color does make a difference. Because that's all about black people fighting up there, killing each other, I mean, by the bushel. Mm-hmm. And it takes a white person to go in and save them. Like, that's the that's the Absolutely. Hero. More and more, America's mass shootings are a major topic of conversation in other countries around the world. The world's Will Carlos in Brazil spent the morning in a Rio de Janeiro favela called Cidade de Deus, or City of God. You might remember this Brazilian housing project when it became an internationally known symbol of violence and poverty as the setting for the 2001 film City of God. Will says some residents in the favela told him today that although they live in a poor and violent neighborhood, they consider themselves lucky that they don't have to face the dangers of American-style mass shootings. They'll say, you know, hey, this is generally a pretty safe place. There are just occasionally these shootings and occasionally people get caught in the crossfire. So that was kind of why I wanted to do this and get out into the favela this morning to talk to these people, because there is that sort of perspective depending on which side of the fence you're on. So you spoke with some of the residents this morning, one of them, a journalist who lives there, uh, 34-year-old Carla Sikos. Let's listen first to what she had to tell you when you asked her if she would like to visit the U.S. And she's speaking in Portuguese, but I think our listeners will get the drift. Entendeu? No meu caso, se alguém me chamar para os Estados Unidos, eu não vou. Por que não? Porque eu morro de medo. Além, além de assim. All right, so, well, what's going on there? What, what's she saying? So, so I asked her, I said, you know, would you want to go to the States? She said, no way. And this is, you know, this is a young, smart, kind of erudite young lady. And, and she just said, no, I wouldn't go. I'd be scared to death to go because some, some lunatic would come and blow themselves up next to me or come in with a gun and start shooting the place. She says, just like people in the States are prejudiced about coming to communities like hers, uh, she is pretty scared and wouldn't 
wouldn't go to the States even if you kind of asked her to. Now, you also spoke with a 30-year-old police officer named Lina Santa. Uh, she was in the shantytown teaching a ballet lesson. She tells you, thank God, here in Brazil, we don't have mass shootings. Let's listen into more of what you spoke about. So, Will, what's she telling you? So she says, you know, we should really pray to God to help American society so that this stops happening over there. The lives of young people, students, families being taken away. Good people who just went out to have fun and never came back. It's really depressing, she said. Did that surprise you, Will? Because, you know, these are individuals in a tough neighborhood in Rio comparing themselves to U.S. residents and finding themselves sort of lucky. Not really, because I've I've heard this before, not not just in Brazil, but sort of all over the world. You know, the, the, the weird thing about this is that a lot of people think that America is a very violent, very dangerous place. I mean, that's partly because of, I guess, decades of Hollywood movies and, and all the violence in those, but also because of these shootings and these mass shootings. As dangerous as places like Cidade de Deus can be and other communities, they don't really have a culture of these sort sort of mass, just completely thoughtless, completely sort of lunatic slayings that we have in the United States. And that's that's kind of confusing and anathema to a lot of the people in these communities. Why do you think that is? What, why are there not mass shootings in Brazil? Why? Well, it, that's, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, I think there is a lot of violence in Brazil, but there doesn't seem to be the senselessness. It's the sort of the senselessness, the innocence of these victims. People get shot and killed in Brazil all the time on an hourly basis but it's almost always because you've got a, a sort of a fight between the police and a drug gang or rival different drug gangs this senseless going in and shooting people just doesn't happen in many places of the world and and i'm sure it's happened in the past in brazil but it's not sort of a a big part of the fabric of brazilian society the way it seems to be in the united states so that's the aspect of mass violence. Let's talk about homosexuality for a moment because uh, Carla, that young journalist we met a moment ago, she told you she thinks homosexuality is more accepted in Brazil than in the U.S. Is that most people's perception? It probably is. I don't know how accurate it is. I mean, obviously, you know, homosexuality is increasingly accepted in the United States. So I think that is the perception. But let's be clear. I mean, there is still hatred against uh, gays and lesbians and transsexuals in Brazil as much as there still is in the United States. There are still lots of problems to take care of here. One final thing, uh, Brazil is actually considering moving toward more U.S.-style relaxed gun laws, e even though they've had challenges pacifying the favelas. They want to relax gun laws. Yeah, that's right. There's a group of lawmakers, powerful Congress people, conservative Congress people pushing to really relax the gun laws. It's not getting anywhere, that law. We haven't seen any movement on it in the last few months, but it would allow individuals to buy up to nine guns each, which is a significant increase from how it is now. Most of the people I've talked to here think that that's absolutely crazy and kind of hope it won't happen. But we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on that. The world's Will Carlos in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Thanks very much, Will. Thank you. Let me start with a confession, something even my close friends are unaware of. But I happen to have an interest, sometimes even an enjoyment, of classical music. I'm black and was raised in a northern working-class city. I feel nervous even admitting to this interest, like a bit of a traitor to my race. But today I want to look at why I feel like this and whether classical music should do more to make people like me feel they can identify with it. 
My first encounter with a violin was as a six-year-old. My mum liked the idea of someone in her family who could play the fiddle. I thought that it would be a really good idea if you could understand music and play it. I did my best, but it was a slightly odd experience. And I liked music anyway, and it was the only problem with you was getting the practice in, you see. Although I worked at it, I felt I was entering another world. Because, you know, you can't be an accomplished anything until you practice, unfortunately. One in which I didn't feel entirely at home. A world that belonged to white people. As I've grown into adulthood, I've realised that my own experience wasn't unique. There simply aren't many professional black classical musicians in the UK. We've got to get away from this whole thing about who can and who can't. Now I'm a journalist and a parent. Is it an issue we should be concerned about? Are there elements of racism in the classical music industry? Can black people have a more substantial and rewarding relationship with classical music? And would that be something that would help the field of music itself? And in the background, those are my kids practising the violin. Classical music's been around for hundreds of years with predominantly white composers, predominantly white musicians. Why is it so important that we actually have minorities involved in classical music? Because classical music, even though we use the term classical, it's a modern-day thing as well, and the world is changing, and... Our country is more diverse and I think we should be actively seeking to engage all the people who are within our society to enjoy and appreciate and engage with classical music. The more diverse it is, the better quality it would be. You can be walking down the street with thousands of people from hundreds of different backgrounds and then you can walk into a concert hall and that range not be represented. It's really jarring. If we open up classical music to people from different ethnic backgrounds, is it the ethnic minorities who benefit, or is it the classical music that benefits? I think that's a great question, because I'm utterly convinced that everybody benefits, because music itself does not discriminate. Music is there for everyone, and I think the arts in general will benefit from a much more diverse inclusion. Chichi Nwanaku who in 2015 founded the Chineke Orchestra of underrepresented and black and minority ethnic musicians. And before that, the composer Hannah Kendall. But what are the facts about black involvement in classical music in Britain today? Plenty of work still needs to be done, but Christina Scharf of King's College London has produced some fascinating research. First of all, why does it matter? Culture is for everybody. Classical music is paid for by taxpayers. Taxpayers are everybody, so it should be accessible and open to everybody. That's the kind of taxpayer economic argument. But more generally, because culture is for everybody, everybody should be able to participate in all forms of culture. And classical music is one form of culture that we celebrate in this country. It is actually quite influential. And it is really important that access is wide and that it is indeed about talent and merit and not about the color of your skin. Within a standard orchestra, what were yeah. the normal numbers that you, we yeah. might be expecting in, in an orchestra if, if there was full representation? 
there's probably around 70 to 100 musicians in an orchestra and the ethnic minority population in the UK at large is around 12 to 13%. So we'd expect if there were 100 people in the orchestra to have 12 or 13 musicians from a minority ethnic background. And what we did is to look at 17 orchestras, which amounted to 629 orchestral players, and we found that only 11, so that's 1.7%, could be identified to be from a black and minority ethnic background. Do you think we're missing out on a lot of talented individuals just who don't get pushed and don't get the breaks? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and I think that's particularly problematic in an industry that prides itself on recruiting talent because we know, if we look at um, the impact of blind auditions, that it's not necessarily always about merit. There's such a thing as unconscious bias, so we might have an unconscious bias and choose people who are more like ourselves. And if the profession is predominantly white, middle class and male, then we perpetuate these kind of stereotypes and exclusions. We do know from other studies that blind auditions really help in terms of addressing inequalities. For example, just to briefly talk about gender, but in the US, the representation of women in orchestras increased by 25% after they had introduced blind auditions. This business of unconscious bias, what does that mean exactly? We often think in our daily lives, working lives, that if we encounter a problem, it's our fault because we live in a society that puts a lot of emphasis on the individual. We hear day in, day out, if you only work hard enough, if you get another degree, if you do this and this and that, you'll succeed. And if you don't succeed, it's your fault. However, if we look at patterns of racial inequalities, for example, in the classical music profession, we see that they're exactly that. They are patterns. And that means that there's something going on which is beyond the individual, And that in turn means that it's really difficult to fight things that are beyond you. You could be the best player, and yet because you don't fit a particular box, you will encounter barriers that other people may not encounter. And why is this important? Because we tend to blame ourselves if we don't succeed. Christina's research also highlighted another interesting statistic. She looked at the student intake at five of the UK's conservatoires in 2012-13. Conservatoires, by the way, are the nation's specialist universities for hands-on music training. Christina found that 8% of the student intake was from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. This in itself is below the 12% of Britain's ethnic minority population. So we've a long way to go before our ethnic minority musicians are fully represented in classical music training or the classical music profession. We should move to Canada. To start off today, I have a very special guest in studio. Uh, she is the president of 
a group in Quebec, Montreal, called Quebec Inclusif. She is a PhD candidate, and she's an activist. She's also a friend of the show, and her name is Emily Nicolas, and she joins us in studio. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm really, really good. I wanted to talk to you about an issue that we talk about a lot on this program, but from the context, context. in Montreal and from Quebec where you live and work. And that's the idea of systemic racism, because very recently your group, Quebec Inclusive, has been in the news talking about the idea of a commission into systemic racism in Quebec. First of all, tell us why you think such a commission is necessary. Well, systemic racism is real. It's a very important problem. And we have a huge problem in Quebec, just like in Ontario and elsewhere, just to be talking about racism. It's a very big taboo. People would rather talk about many other words um, instead of saying the real word racism. And uh, we think just by having a commission like that, just by having this campaign, actually, will help, we're helping break the taboo so that Quebecers know that racism is something that is talkable. It's not something that's taboo. And it helps as well raise the consciousness of people so that it's not something that's only talked about in Montreal, but it's talked about province-wide. And then when you have a commission like that, you can have people from all sorts of background come and be heard by the government which rarely happen. A lot of people in racialized community are marginalized completely and they don't feel really like they have a place in Quebec politics. So with a commission like that, their stories could be important to Quebec's government and centered. And I think that's a very important step to addressing the problems that people are facing in many communities. Give our listeners some examples and some experiences of what you mean when you talk specifically about systemic racism in the context in Quebec, because of the fact of language difference between Quebec and the rest of Canada, we rarely hear a lot of the stories that come out about a lot of things in Quebec, but specifically on this issue of racism, I think a lot of people maybe they don't read the news in French, they don't know what's happening on the regular in Quebec. Try to break it down for our listeners a little bit. Well, just to start with the beginning of this campaign in April, with uh, a shooting, a black man in Montreal was killed by the Montreal police. And what you, you, you realize is that in terms of police brutality and racial profiling, you have very, very much the same reality in Toronto that, that you have in Montreal. And the people who organize around police brutality, especially in Montreal North, are the ones who launched this campaign and this idea of having a commission into systemic racism. You also see it in the media. There is about four, maybe three, two, I don't know. It's a handful only of racialized people who have a voice as columnists or other in French media. There's a real scarcity there. In terms of representation in parliament as well, there's only uh, four visible minorities out of the 125 MNAs that we have in parliament, and very few as well in the city of Montreal. I think it's four or five, while in reality, Half of Montreal is an, is an ethnocultural minority. Is one third of Montrealers are visible minorities. Mm. So people are absent from position of power, and you see it as well uh, in the corporate sector. You see it everywhere. There's an absence of minorities in 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 in, um, in, in all of the political economic sphere, and definitely there's uh, higher uh, unemployment rates as well when you're black or when you're Muslim. The or when you, you're from North Africa, the, 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 the unemployment rate can be double 
the, the average rate in Quebec as well. So it is empowering, empowering people. It is sending them in prison. It is criminalizing a lot of the population. And it's creating a system where um, there is no sense that people have this, the, the same opportunities and the same fair shot at, at, at uh, being successful in life. What was the name of the young man who was shot and killed in Montreal? Uh, his name is Bonnie Jean-Pierre. And uh, he's, a, he's a man of Haitian descent uh, from Montreal North. And so how does the general public and the media respond when something like that happens in Quebec, a police shooting of a black man? What is the response? Well, there is very little response first. Um, and then the people organize. Um, once, one, th one thing that is really important to know is that uh, Montreal North itself was... Um, uh, scarred or marked by um, by a, a similar shooting incident that happened in 2008. Another young man called Veli, Freddy Villanueva was, was shot by the police as well. And so uh, it's the second time in a very few years that the situation has happened in the same neighborhood. And so the response to the media is very much in relationship with the previous incident that has uh, left uh, a deep mark on, on people's understanding of police brutality in Montreal. And so there is, uh, there is little response. Uh, or when, it, when there is a response, people expect riots and they're looking for they're looking for uh unrest from the the people in the neighborhood rather than seeing the solidarity that emerge and the fight for justice that emerge from the neighborhood so it's not it's not all dark but at the same time uh, we we can say that there's a problem with how the media portrays the situation definitely emily nicola is an activist a phd candidate and the president of quebec inclusive and we're talking about systemic racism in Quebec and actions by my guest and others to try and address it. Now, Jean-Pierre Bonny was Haitian. You yourself are Haitian. Mm -hmm. And you've written about the Haitian diaspora in Montreal and in Quebec. Mm -hmm. What do you want people to know about Haitians in Montreal? I want people to know that it's a, well, it's a, it's a community that's been around for 50 years almost, for the most part. Um, and it's a community that has a specific history in terms of integrating or inserting themselves rather into, into Francophone Quebec and coming from a place that is Creole speaking and also French speaking. And so there's been, there's been a, a, Haiti has had a very important place in, in the French Canadian imagination of how French Canadians can project themselves as having a relevance or a role to play in the South, right? And so Haiti is a place that every French Canadians know a little bit about, I've heard of, or they know uh, someone who's Haitian. Haitians are the, lar the largest groups of people born outside of, of Quebec, living in Quebec. Really? So it's, it's a huge diaspora and it's a huge part of, of the, the Montreal um, landscape, I, I would put it this way. And so it's symbolically very important and it's also a very different or it's a different tradition of activism and organizing uh, against anti-black uh, racism in Canada in terms of uh, how they how people have been mobilizing against uh, against injustice in Quebec, but also against injustice in Haiti and using the the and, and, and using their their foot in Canada to uh change Canadian policy in Haiti. So it's a, it's a very unique experience that people should learn about. 
And in the last minute that we have, you and I have talked a lot about the idea of solidarity between French-speaking Quebec and the rest of Canada. And how can people who care about systemic racism but maybe are not as connected or aware of what's going on in Quebec, how can they begin to reach out and educate themselves and reach out to people who are doing the same kind of work that you are? Uh, some sources are available in English. Uh, but I think the most important part in this, and this is why I love being on, on your show, is that more more often than not, when we talk about racism in Quebec, we are kind of caught in between um, denouncing what's going on and then being accused of Quebec bashing by Anglophones in Quebec or outside of Quebec. The idea being that talking about racism in Quebec from the outside is just bashing Quebec. Exactly. But the reality of the practice of Quebec bashing is that it's actually Ontario uplifting, right? It's it's white people using what's going wrong in Quebec to feel better about themselves. And the thing is that being on your show, Desmond, I know that you would never do anything that's Ontario uplifting, right? You know <laughs> that you know how to call people on what's wrong here as well. And so when I have a conversation with you about racism in Quebec, it's not to make people in Ontario feel better or to hide or to be a screen as what's going on in the activism that's that's been going on in Ontario. And because of that, we have a premise that for a conversation that's never going to go into Quebec bashing. And this is what we need more of. Emily, I want to thank you so much for coming in studio today. Thank you for the invite. My, my, my pleasure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh, with the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. All you find of only black people in Minnesota is Prince and Kirby Puckett. A 24-year-old man is set to appear in Hennepin County District Court today on charges that he shot five men near a Black Lives Matter occupation outside the 4th Precinct last November. Alan Lance Scarcella, who is white, is facing seven charges in the incident that left five black men injured. John Collins has been following the case. He joins me in studio. Good to see you. Hi. Remind us what we're talking about here. So Jamar Clark, if you'll remember, he was a 24-year-old African-American man who was involved in what police described as an altercation. Uh, Last November 15th, uh, a police officer shot Jamar Clark. He died the next day. His death sparked protests all across the region, including an occupation in front of the Minneapolis Police Department's 4th Precinct in North Minneapolis, which lasted more than two weeks. Now, prosecutors say these four defendants, including Scarcella, went to a protest outside the 4th Precinct on the night of November 23rd to cause trouble at the demonstration. There was a confrontation, and then accounts diverged. Prosecutors say protesters were trying to escort the four defendants out. Some witnesses told police that a protester punched one of the defendants. Others said some of these four defendants said racial slurs to the protesters. Prosecutors say that Scarcella opened fire after the confrontation or during the confrontation. Five black men were shot and wounded. Scarcella later confessed to a Mankato officer who's a personal friend of his. He was the first arrested and he's in court today. Okay, but the shooting happened back in November, so things seem to be 
pretty slow moving. Why is that? Well, it's been characterized by repeated delays in the legal process. For all four defendants, these hearings have been pushed back repeatedly. To be fair, there's lots of evidence to consider. There are videos, there are witness interviews, news reports, etc. And attorneys have just repeatedly asked for extensions here. Scarcella is important because he faces the bulk of the charges. He's the alleged shooter. He faces a handful of counts of assault in the second degree, as well as one of assault in first degree. And each of the other three defendants face just one second degree riot charge. So what's today's hearing all about? So this is what's called the omnibus hearing. The other three have a similar hearing on June 24th that will be together. And since Scarcella is accused of pulling the trigger, um, this is a very important hearing to see kind of how these cases might go. He's been in jail since he was arrested, and he's being held in lieu of a $500,000 bail, and he's represented by a public defender. Well, the other defendants have all hired or brought on attorneys, and some of them have filed motions already asking that their charges be dismissed. So what kind of developments, if any, could be expected today? So far, none of the defendants have entered any sort of plea, so they have not said whether they will plead guilty or not guilty. What could happen today is that Scarcella and his lawyer may enter a plea. If so, we would go through some of the pretrial motions, any sort of challenges, and then the court case would proceed. And the same goes for the other defendants who will be in court on June 24th. Uh, What have the other defendants said? Some of the defendants already have asked for charges to be dismissed. The argument that Daniel Macy's lawyer makes is that essentially this was a self-defense situation. He said in a March motion that a defendant was punched before the shooting started and threatened that said, we can't predict how this is going to proceed or, or in any of these four cases, but we will continue to follow them as they move forward. I know we will. John Collins, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Just saying. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you're losing. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Over the last year or so, the murder rate has jumped in America's big cities. And today the Justice Department is releasing an analysis that suggests that some of that jump may be caused by what's come to be known as the Ferguson effect. And here's Martin Custy reports. The analysis was written by Rick Rosenfeld, a professor of criminology at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and a respected expert in crime trends. We are in the midst of a very abrupt, precipitous, and large crime increase. Specifically, murder is spiking in urban areas. He says last year in the country's 56 biggest cities, homicides jumped 17 percent. That's a far larger percentage increase than in nearly any other year we've seen over the last couple of decades. When there's a spike in the numbers like that, criminologists look to see if it correlates with other trends, such as a surge in the illegal drug trade or a wave of ex-convicts getting released from prison. While both those things have happened in recent years, Rosenfeld's analysis shows the timing isn't right. They don't quite sync up with the spike in murders. But there is another potential explanation that does. Some version of the Ferguson effect. Notice he says some version of the Ferguson effect. That's because people disagree about what that effect is. It could be about police holding back, afraid to do their jobs. Or you could look at it from the opposite point of view. 
that it's a matter of citizens, especially black people, losing faith in local cops. When the perceived legitimacy of the police is in decline, community members take matters into their own hands because they perceive that the police are simply not going to provide the kind of protection the community desires. Rosenfeld says he wants to see some more detailed statistics. For instance, he wants to see if the month-by-month arrest records show the police holding back. The problem is the FBI is painfully slow about releasing those detailed national numbers. And we may not get a complete view of the Ferguson effect until this fall, a full two years after Ferguson itself. Martin Costi, NPR News. Because black women have nursed a nation of strangers. For hundreds of years, they literally nursed babies at their breast who they knew when they grew up would rape their daughters and kill their sons. That's a, that's a fact. That's strong. I know, but it's the truth, Bill. It's the truth. I want to be a cop. And now at 11, a fired Fort Lauderdale cop fights to get his old job back. The department accused him of racism, but you may be surprised by his star witness. CBS 4's Aurelia Ortega joins us live from Fort Lauderdale with the story. Aurelia? Ruta Bay, that star witness is his girlfriend who's black, and she says when he used the N-word, she doesn't believe he used it in a hateful way. That I'm not a racist. I never have been a racist. I never will be a racist. Some of my best friends have been niggers. Fired Fort Lauderdale police officer Jason Holding is trying to persuade an arbitrator to order him rehired. An uphill battle after these racist photos of the president. Damn you, Obama. Of blacks being attacked by police dogs. Even mock on the spot executions of minorities showed up on the cell phones of Officer Holding and three other cops. At the hearing, Holding got help from his African-American girlfriend. The two started dating after the allegations against him surfaced. There are people that make mistakes. There are people that say things that they don't mean. Officer James Wells, Officer Alex Alvarez, Officer Holding, and Officer Christopher Sosa all lost their jobs in March of last year over racist communication. The police chief said it doesn't matter if the cops exchanged bigoted texts on their private phones. Duty, on duty, whatever you do, once it comes to light, you're a police officer, everyone is going to look at your actions. Holding said his frequent use of the N-word may have been influenced by working a tough inner-city neighborhood. The chief and city leaders say the behavior of the four officers set community relations back decades. This is pure hatred and racism. It is uh, obviously morally repugnant and we just cannot we cannot have this in our community and officer james wells who also had an arbitration hearing back in february was unsuccessful in getting his job back reporting live in fort lauderdale orally artega cbs 4 news tonight and then i started reaching further and i remember remember 1946 looking in ebony magazine and i saw two black females ladies uh, standing and looking out over a veranda and they were smiling and they looked very happy. I think about 1946 is when Ebony first came out, first black magazine, if I'm not incorrect, uh, of that type. Analysts report on the sale of Ebony and Jet, 
Clearview Group, an African-American private equity firm, bought those historically black magazines. Karen Grigsby-Bates from our Code Switch team reports on the magazine's founder, Johnson Publishing. For decades, Ebony and Jet magazines were on many black Americans' coffee tables and in the waiting rooms of black doctors and dentists and in much thumb through piles in black barbershops and beauty salons. Audrey Smaltz, a former announcer for the Ebony Fashion Fair, one of the world's largest traveling fashion shows, says these magazines were a must. People wanted to know what was going on in the colored world, in the African-American community. Smaltz went to work at Ebony in the 1970s, partly because of original publisher John Johnson's focus on stories about black achievers. In its heyday, politicians and movie stars, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes were all featured on Ebony's covers. Mr. Johnson told us about people who had studied and had done great things and had discovered things and, and, and designed things. Where did you hear about them? You read about it in Ebony. Its sister publication, Jet, became famous in 1955 for publishing unedited photos of Chicago teenager Emmett Till's body after he was lynched in Mississippi. The national outrage that followed is credited by many with igniting the modern civil rights movement. Sylvester Monroe is a former Ebony senior editor and native Chicagoan. He says the company's flagship building, designed by a black architect and filled with African and African-American art, was also a source of inspiration to the city's black community. There was just a huge amount of pride to have a black publication and that logo up on top of the building that you could see for a long way away. I've been saying, Ebony, Jet, it did used to bring Gooch Pipples to you. So when the building was sold in 2011, there was anxious speculation about the future of the magazines it had housed. In many ways, after the building was sold, everyone was waiting for the next shoe to drop. That's Ken Smichael, president of Target Market News, a Chicago-based corporate marketing news company that tracks black consumer buying patterns and trends. Jet ceased publication a couple of years ago and now exists in digital form only. Ebony has both digital and print versions. Both magazines have been victims of the same fragmentation and shrinking circulation that has affected much of the publishing world. And some of Ebony's critics feel it has lost a lot of the influence it had in the 50s and 60s when it covered the civil rights movement. But questioning Ebony's relevance clearly rankles Smichael. When folks would say, do you think the magazine and the company is still relevant? And I would say, I don't know, is your grandmother still relevant? In other words, history is still important not just to readers, but also to employees. Ken Smichael says Ebony staff considers their work more than just a job. You don't come to work every day at a black media company with the idea of getting rich or getting famous. You come with a sense of mission that what you do is an important part of an entire community. Chairman Linda Johnson-Rice is the daughter of company founder John H. Johnson, who died in 2005. A company statement says this week's sale will allow Johnson Publishing Corporation to reduce its media-related debt and concentrate on its profitable cosmetics division. Whether selling Ebony and Jet will ensure their future survival is up in the air. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News.
In the past week, three legacy products in black media have been reported to be changing hands or likely to be. In Chicago, Johnson Publishing is selling Ebony and Jet Magazine to a company called Clearview in Texas. And today, the FCC announced it will begin to auction off Howard University's WHUT, the nation's first and only black-owned public television station. If you're over 25, Ebony and Jet, although aging impact-wise, are legacy brands that are impossible to ever replace. Who knows what Clearview will do with them? Though that firm is black owned just the possibility of them going down the drain symbolically is depressing right here in dc whut was crucial to reinforcing positive images of people of color in our living rooms to muster the thought that in a short time all could be gone is almost unthinkable and will be a blow to black journalists young and old across the country if it happens i'm clinton yates and that's my take. Shoot, he probably made up this whole slavery thing. What nigga you know gonna work all day in a hot field for no paper? See, that's your problem. You be believing anything somebody tells you or put in a book. Yeah, Jesse's much-anticipated debut novel, Homegoing, follows the lives of seven generations of an extended Ghanaian family from the mid-1700s to the present day. All of the book's characters are descended from a pair of half-sisters who never knew each other. One of them, Effia, marries a British slave trader, and her family line remains rooted in West Africa, profiting from the developing slave trade there, while her half-sister, Essie, is captured, sold into slavery, and her descendants endure slavery, the Civil War, Jim Crow, and the Great Migration. In her review on the front page of yesterday's New York Times Sunday Book Review, Isabel Wilkerson called the book a hypnotic debut novel by a stirringly gifted young writer. It's published by Knopf, and I'm very pleased it has brought you know, Jesse to our show today. Hello. Hi, thank you. And first, congratulations on the wonderful reviews your books received, not just in the Times, but everywhere. This novel first made the news last year after it was sold for a hefty sum. I'm not going to say how much. <laughs> Did that make you at all nervous about the critical reception the novel would get afterward? Yeah, I think it did make me a little nervous. You know, um, like many writers, I was kind of writing in the dark, uncertain of whether or not my book would ever see the light. And, and then to walk out into the light and not just a little bit, but, but quite a bit, um, you know, it was, it was definitely nerve wracking. Tell us about the title. Why Home Going instead of Homecoming? Well, homegoing is a term that traditionally speaks to slave funerals. The idea was that once a slave died, his or her spirit would get to return home to the country from which they were taken. Um, and so I thought that, that that title would be particularly resonant because there's this connection to, to the land um, in Africa for these African-American characters and, and, a, and a, an emphasis on, on family and returning and, and all of that. You were born in Ghana, but, haven't, but you've lived in the United States since you were two years old. Your family moved here. Yes. But do you do some homegoing? Um, I've only been back to Ghana twice. I went with my whole family when I was 11, um, and then again by myself in 2009 to research this book, and, and that was really kind of my own homegoing trip. And the next time you go there, you'll be famous. <laughs> what brought your parents to the United States? My father was getting his Ph.D. Um, in French from Ohio State, so we all came for that and, and just stayed ever since. You say that you spoke Tway at home when you were young. Yeah. Um, how well do you speak the language now? Oh, so poorly. Um, I understand pretty fluently, but I, I don't speak it well. You know, we got in a habit of our parents speaking to us in Tree and us answering back in English, and mm -hmm. so now that's kind of just the way my, my brain works. There's that problem with families of your sort. 
Uh, do you think of yourself as Ghanaian or American or Ghanaian American or American Ghanaian? Yeah, right. It's a it's a big issue of identity for me. Um, I I think of myself as Ghanaian American. You know, kind of fully both things. Um, you know, I grew up kind of not not feeling Ghanaian enough in Ghana and not American enough in America, and and trying to navigate those two lines has been has been interesting. Did writing this book give you a chance to think about how you fit into both cultures? Yes, absolutely. I think. It's why I wrote this book was to to try to get a sense of myself, um, um, identity wise, both my ethnicity and my race, and and how all, all of those things came to play. And as you mentioned, you began research for this novel the summer after your sophomore year at Stanford. Uh, you'd been you'd won a grant to travel to Ghana. Yes, that's correct. I, I received a, a grant from Stanford to travel to Ghana to do research for a novel. So you knew you were going to write a book of this sort. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I had a vague different idea in mind, like a book about mothers and daughters. And um, it wasn't until I took a tour of the castle myself, the Cape Coast Castle, um, that that kind of begins and ends this book that I realized that I wanted to write this kind of a novel. One of your characters, Evia, lives with her white husband in relative luxury in the upper floors of the castle, while Essie is held in almost unimaginably terrible conditions in the dungeon below. Yeah. I've read that uh, Cape Coast Castle is just one of a number of similar buildings that were used by slave traders, uh, the foreign slave traders. Do others also exist today? Yeah. um, The Cape Coast Castle is is a popular stopping point, I think, for a lot of tourists, a lot of um, African-Americans who want to kind of, you know, connect back to their roots. But there are several other ones that that still exist. Um, Elmina is another one in Ghana. Um, There's Gore Island that people go to. um, So there's still a lot. And Barack Obama went to see it, I gather. Yeah. Was it also during this visit to the castle that you first understood the extent to which black Africans participated in the capture, enslavement, and sale of their fellow Africans? I think so. You know, I wasn't really um, aware of that part of our history. I knew it kind of, you know, um, vaguely, but I I didn't really think about it um, really until the the tour guide kind of took us through and and talked to us about different aspects of of Ghanaian involvement. I've read some people justifying the slave trade because Mm. of that. Yeah, yeah. That seems like a huge shame to me. Before Essie is captured and enslaved, doesn't her family own a young slave of their own, a young girl that was captured in a raid who who helps out in the kitchen? Yes, it's true. Um, Essie's family owns a slave, and, and then Essie becomes a slave. So do you think that's why the slave trade became was more acceptable in the area, because people were already engaging in it on their own? Um, perhaps. I think, you know, the, there was a, a lot in play. Uh, there, there was a lot about kind of the exploitation um, of the different ethnic groups um, and, and exploitation, you know, of each other and then, and then you know, exploitation by the British of the, of the Ghanaians. So um, it was a, a really complicated situation. Had the local slave been captured during tribal wars? Um, yeah, there were, there were uh, different, different wars between the different ethnic groups that, that uh, resulted in, in several captures. You mentioned the British, but uh, many foreign countries were True. involved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 book focuses um, mostly on the British, but there was because s- of Ghana. Ghana became right. a British colony. Right, exactly. I wanted to talk about about British uh, colonialism, but there were several other uh, European nations involved involved in the slave trade at that time. Alex Haley covered some of the same ground in his best-selling novel Roots, which was made into that 
PBS series in the 1970s, recently remade into a miniseries that aired on the History Channel. Is it true that you avoided reading Roots because you didn't want to be influenced? It's true. You know, I avoided reading a lot of different fiction that I thought might get into my head a little bit, and Roots in particular because I knew there was so much in common, I, I suppose, thematically with what I was trying to do with my novel. Um, I wanted I wanted to really feel free to, to explore it in my own way, so I just never read the book. Um, and, and still haven't. Still have not. No. You can read it now. It's I okay. can. This I book will. Is published. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking with Yeah Jesse, Y A A G Y A S I. Her novel Homegoing is already on the bestseller list. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African, 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 African. On June 16, 1976, thousands of black South African students took to the streets after a government decree forced all black schools to use Afrikaans and English as languages of instruction. The demonstrations against institutional racism turned deadly after police used tear gas and opened fire on peaceful protesters. It's estimated at least 170 people were killed and more than 1,000 injured in the days that followed. Well, the crackdown made international headlines shocking people with the reality of South Africa's structural racism and inequality. Apartheid was dismantled in 1994, but some say today's born-free generation is still facing similar grievances from the past. So what's changed for young South Africans since the Soweto uprising, and how has it impacted youth activism in the country today? Well, to help us talk about this, we're joined by Busi Mukambuzi, a South African student activist. Noor Niftahuddin is a professor of history at the University of the Witwatersrand, or WITS, in Johannesburg. Also in Johannesburg, Simon Kele Dilakabu, who is a student activist and storyteller. And black consciousness leader Ishmael Mukabila. He was there on the ground during the 1976 protests. Welcome, everyone, to the stream. Noor. What do you remember about June 16, 1976? So I, I think it's important to kind of ask the question, uh, why was it, as you introduced, that on June 16th, and in fact beyond that, tens of thousands of young black students, uh, women and men, uh, protested, even as they were faced by the brutality of the South African state. And the trigger of the rebellion was, as you said, that students oppose the imposition by the apartheid government uh, of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. And beyond that, very quickly, uh, rebelled against what was called Bante education. And I think it's extremely important to kind of focus on that, because what the Bante education system did was it attempted or it, it, it produced an education system that was deliberately inferior to white education, and attempted to produce young blacks to work in menial labor and tend to the needs of white people. This was the foremost reason why young black people rebelled in 1976. But on the day, uh, in fact, at, uh, in the late morning, when the police shot Hastings and Globo and Hector Peterson, within minutes that rebellion pro uh, proceeded from being a struggle against Bante education to being, in the words of the student, of the students, a rebellion against the system of apartheid, mm. against bad education, and against, as you said, 
institutional ra uh, racism. The question that we have today is that in our school system, and as the fees must fall and the roads must fall movement uh, pr uh, very profoundly uh, put on our agenda at the end of last year and this year, is that even though we don't have institutional racism, the problems that affected young black people in the 1970s and the 1980s, which was that the system prevented young black people from reaching their aspirations, from fulfilling their ambitions. Right. Young black people today still feel that the system today prevents them from fulfilling their ambitions. Uh, Ishmael, I want to throw this to you. Do you feel like we can just move on and look forward at this point? Or do you still feel like there's something more that we need to get closure about events from 40 years ago? I would like to say that uh, in as much as Prof has talked about uh, the symptoms of our oppression then, I think then we have to say that uh, what, what was lost was our land, were disempowered, dispossessed, and were exploited. Mm. And uh, 1976 came, we can't just say the struggle is complete. Any struggle is relative, it's not absolute. The journey is still remaining to be covered. We still need to fight for many things. We can't close all the time. As long as we are alive, you need to struggle for something, for an idea, rather than to say, hallelujah, everything is accomplished. Ishmael, you were actually there, though, in 1976. Take us uh, through what it was like for you being a young person then. For me, when 1976 came, I was completing my teaching training. I was ready to come back to Soweto and teach the following year. But during that year, 1976, I was faced with making a choice whether to write an exam conditionally, promising that wherever I teach, I'll make children obedient and not riot. I turned my back on that type mm -hmm. of conditional examination and I left the University of the North and thankfully I had to make a bonfire of all my books and I came back home wow. to join those who had wounds and those who were arrested wow. and others died. And as you're talking, Busi here is nodding. <laughs> and, and I'm yeah. sure, you, I know from what you told our producers ahead of the show, that your father was yeah. there as a youth in Soweto. He, went, he grew up there, went to school there. Yeah. What does he tell you about what happened? So, so both my parents actually grew up in Soweto. Um, but my dad was a bit more involved, specifically on the day, on June 1976. He was 16. Um, he had just turned 16. He was yeah, just, just turned 16. And so he was a young man. And he describes it, you know, um, as a day that was just a rush. So there were all these school kids um, going to school as per usual. But, you know, everyone knew that there was a simmering tension. Mm -hmm. There's something going on and everyone is talking and it has to stop. And that was the day when, when they got to their school gates. There were all the students standing at the gate saying, we're all going to Orlando. We're all moving in this one direction. Orlando is, was the meeting venue mm -hmm. um, where, where all the students met for a mass meeting. And, and he remembers, you know, being part of that rush of thousands of students just moving towards, you know, this one big school in Orlando for this meeting with the older students. And, you know, according to what he tells me, that day was actually supposed to be just a day where they meet, where they draft a memorandum. Um, and it was going to be over three days that they demonstrate to the government that, you know, we don't want to be taught in a, in a language that is foreign, in a language that represents our oppressor. Right. Um, and, and the police, of course, disrupted that process and it turned violent. So it was very interesting to hear that from Bob Ishmael, yep. you know, 
um, and that tension between teachers, parents, and students. Right. So, Simam Kele, what do you think of this comparison between the protests from 40 years ago with the current protests that are taking place? Do you think that's a fair comparison? Definitely, I do. And activists that were there, people mm. like Seth Mazabugo, um, agrees. Um, but I think I want to touch on the point that is made by Alex, is that what does it mean for our country to celebrate June 16 while students have been beaten, arrested, mm. suspended, and expelled from their institutions? Black students who mm. come from poverty, who who their only way out of poverty really is getting an education somehow. Yeah. So for me, I think this day is, is more of a day of mourning for me, not only mourning for the lives that were lost in June um, 1976, but also the futures that have been destroyed by the institutional might of management mm -hmm. and the state. We move into Mississippi, and you know how that spelled. M I crooked letter crooked letter I crooked letter crooked letter I hook back hook back I. <laughs> the only stories I ever heard in my early life was how many white folks my relatives killed. So my reality was a different thing. I literally thought I was the baddest dude ever been born. I mean, I really thought I couldn't die. Many, if not most of the things I've done, if I had not believed that, I probably wouldn't have done it. The March Against Fear, that was a major demonstration in the civil rights movement in the South. Activist James Meredith launched the event June 6, 1966. He wanted to make a solitary walk from here in Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi. As Meredith marks the 50th anniversary of the march, he sat down with Local 24 anchor Katina Rankin to reflect on its significance. It was a distance of 220 miles from the Bluff City to the capital of Mississippi, Jackson. James Meredith wanted to do a couple of things. Counter racism in the Mississippi Delta after federal civil rights legislation passed and to encourage African Americans to register to vote. It was a march to express both the depths of black grievances and the height of black possibilities. June 6, 1966, James Meredith set out on a journey, a march against fear walk that started in Memphis, Tennessee. James Meredith was at war against white supremacy. And worldwide, at that time, only men fought wars. He invited only black men to join him, and he did not want it to become a large media event. But on the second day of his walk in Hernando, Mississippi, Meredith was shot by James Aubrey Norville, a white gunman. Someone might have had enough violent capacity to prevent me from enjoying my right. But they could never uh, make me uh, acknowledge that they had rights I didn't have. The march continued while Meredith was hospitalized. Some big names joined the movement, including Stokely Carmichael, James Brown, Dick Gregory, Marlon Brando, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Ordinary people, both black and white, came from across the Mid-South and all parts of the country to participate. After a short hospital stay, James Meredith was released from the hospital. He planned to rejoin the march, then withdrew for a time, because he did not want a large media circus around what he was really trying to achieve. But he eventually rejoined the march June 25th. 
The march with an estimated 15,000 marchers entered Jackson, Mississippi, June 26th, making it the largest civil rights march in the history of the Magnolia State. It wasn't me that had me without fear. It was my belief that God was all around me and nobody couldn't even touch me if they wanted to. James Meredith did much more than lead that march into Jackson, Mississippi. He also became the first African-American to be enrolled into the University of Mississippi. Coming up Sunday night at 10 p.m., James Meredith and I get candid about racism, politics, and so much more. How he feels about race now just might surprise you. I'll see you again Sunday night. Katina Rankin, Local 24 News. history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and a press. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. He didn't know he was being used by God. Blinded by hatred, the alleged killer could not see the grace surrounding Reverend Picnic and that Bible study group. The light of love that shone as they opened the church doors and invited a stranger to join in their prayer circle. The alleged killer could have never anticipated the way the families of the fallen would respond when they saw him in court in the midst of unspeakable grief with words of forgiveness. He couldn't imagine that. They grew up attending historic Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. Their beloved church is also where their sister would die. 
North Carolina State Senator Malcolm Graham explained that his sister spent her life around words. She was a dedicated librarian and a lifelong learner who would want people to learn from this tragedy. She wasn't even supposed to be at Emanuel that night. No, she came to drop something off, um, and she dropped it off um, to the individual Bible study was getting ready to start, um, and so she decided to stay. North Carolina State Senator Malcolm Graham wanted to talk about his sister, a lifelong librarian in the Charleston County Public Library System at the place where he and Cynthia Graham Heard spent hours walking and talking, the banks of Brittle Bank Park. You found out about the shooting that night because you were watching TV. Yeah. And what was your first reaction? Uh, call Cynthia. Um, the busybody person would know what's going on down there, right? It's my home church and um, in my hometown. And so obviously I was very concerned. And the person I called first was Cynthia, and obviously um, um, to no avail. You're never at the wrong place at the wrong time when you go to church. And so I, I will not say that. Uh, she was at the right place at the right time. What would she say about this? This wasn't really an attack on her. She would say this was an attack on a race of people, and that this was an attack on humanity. Would she be angry? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, she would be uh, very angry, uh, and she would be uh, amused by the response of, of um, forgiveness. She would have found that. Uh, that was just too simplistic of a response. This really wasn't about gun violence. Um, the gun was the tool that the perpetrator used to commit the crime. Uh, my mother sung in the choir. Uh, my sister and I sent our Easter speeches here. While walking inside Mother Emanuel, Senator Graham painted a picture of his and Cynthia's life. Both of my parents' homegoing service was held here and there in the church graveyard. So, Emmanuel is a place uh, that I know very well. Uh, it's, I consider it a second home. He explained that he believed that the appropriate punishment for the man who murdered his sister and eight people in the basement of his beloved church is death. Do you agree with the death penalty being a consideration for penalty? I think it's the only penalty that should be considered. A lawmaker working through personal grief, healing while trying to make the world his sister loved better. My goal every day I wake up is trying to create a community that's better tomorrow than it is today. Malcolm Graham talks about what his sister did to improve this community. She served on the Charleston Housing Authority's board since 1995, and the library where she served as manager has been renamed the Cynthia Heard Regional Library. A scholarship has been named at the College of Charleston in her honor, and there is also a used children's book drive in Charleston and Charlotte, both organized to promote literacy in children. 17, 2015 was a long day for members of Emmanuel AME Church. They nearly canceled Bible study because they'd been in church meetings all day. Through tears and a few moments of laughter, two women who survived the massacre told me how they felt that night their family and friends died and how they found strength 
to keep living. Well, we went back and forth, whether to cancel or whether to have it. We went back and forth for a good little while. Survivors telling their story. And um, Reverend DePayne, doctor, said, you know what, we all are here. We all are, have our Bible. Polly Shepard admits she didn't want to stay for Bible study June 17, 2015, even though her friend, Reverend Myra Thompson, was leading the week's lesson. And she said, um, you're not going to stay and support me? I said, no. I'm going home. I'm hungry. I'm diabetic. <laughs> I didn't eat, and I'm going home. Well, I never got to speak out. I got interested in the Bible study and I stayed. Felicia Sanders was surrounded by family that night. Her aunt, Susie Jackson, her son, Tawanza Sanders, and her 11-year-old granddaughter. Well, for some odd reason, she would always like to be at Bible study because <laughs> she would ask a question and Reverend Simmons would give her either a penny or a nickel. <laughs> Sanders said that night, the girl seemed different. I can remember a couple people asking her why was she crying. And she said she didn't know. And I said, you crying for no reason? That could have been a sign right there that danger was ahead. A stranger walked into Bible study. Did that change the mood any, or? Well, at the time, that wasn't a stranger. So every now and then, we did white kids in Bible study. So at, the, at that time, he wasn't a stranger. The women said the young white man, now identified as Dylan Roof, seemed interested in the group. When he sat and got all the paperwork and stayed the whole time. We got real relaxed. There were lessons and laughter. Myra was so proud to be teaching Bible study that night. We had a wonderful time. It was a lot of laughing. Even from Ruth. Actually, I saw him smile twice, laugh twice, and um, we just didn't know. We just didn't know. A gag order prevents Sanders and Shepard from describing what happened during the shooting. In the chaos, Sanders and her granddaughter pretended to be dead. As far as the killer's concerned, I'm a dead woman. He didn't know I was still alive. Shepard hid under a table. Ruth told her he would allow her to live so that she could tell what he said and what he did. Sometimes I feel guilty. All of these people are gone and I'm still here. But I know God has me here for a reason, and I have to try to carry it out whatever he left for me to do. The Lord had to talk to me and say, you didn't lose anybody. You're not like the other people who lost family members. I left you here so you can tell about my goodness. So you can't do it with anger in it. As far as forgiving him, it wasn't for him. It was for me. Mm -hmm. um, he can care less if I forgive him. So it was for me as a part of healing. Sanders suffered additional torture and torment that night. I always felt he was safe when he was with me. She watched her 26-year-old son die as he pleaded to be allowed to live. She misses the young man who worked two jobs, wrote music and poetry, and rode the bus to Bible study. We all tell Tomanza, you need to find, focus on one thing, focus on one thing, focus on one thing. It's not until after he died, we realized that he can't focus on one thing because he had to get it all done. What about the punishment? Do you think it's appropriate or what would you think is reasonable punishment? Um, whether he gets every day of the rest of his life in jail 
or whether he get the electric chair. That was the choice that he made. No might give it to him. That's what he gave himself. I don't believe in the death penalty. I believe at 21 he should have a chance to turn his life around and God will save him. The women said the past 12 months have been filled with talks and speeches and meetings, but little time for grieving. It saddened me to think that June 17th is here again and I hadn't even grieved June 17th of last year. I, I'm just glad I haven't broken down some. Every, every now and then I feel very anxious and nervous, but it goes away. With prayer, it goes away. Sanders and Shepard have traveled the world together. When we got, we went to South Africa, when we got off the plane, people knew us. They said, we saw you on TV. You were very resilient. We love you. But neither is comfortable with the spotlight. Yet they find the strength to offer their profession of forgiveness. My prayer is, Lord, I didn't apply for this job, <laughs> but since you gave it to me, you have to give me the courage. You have to give me the words. You have to be with me and get me up to speak or whatever I have to do. I don't understand how that could have happened to Bible study. That's one, one of the things that stick with me every day. I probably ask myself that every day. How could that happen at Bible study? I don't know if I'll ever know the answer, but that's one of the things that um, I think about all the time. They have suffered more than most, mentally and emotionally, but they are alive. They are survivors. We may be different in skin color, but we mean no, each other no harm. And I'm going to say that till the day I die. We mean each other no harm, because that was my son's last words. An amazing interview, one I will never forget. And certainly treasure and appreciate the opportunity to speak with Ms. Shepard and Ms. Sanders. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 18th, 2016. So I have been told. Compensatory call in. Feel free, dial in if you have thoughts you would like to share. The number to dial is 641 715. Three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. 
press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. We will be here uh, tomorrow, the Global Sunday Talk on Racism, uh, encouraging uh, folks uh, outside the States to call in. I'm uh, especially curious to hear uh, how the Orlando incident is being discussed and reported on uh, outside the States. Uh, Also, uh, they had the shooting uh, of a uh, lawmaker, Joe Cox, uh, that happened in uh, England. Uh, it's the uh, 40-year anniversary of the Soweto uh, student uprising. Lots of things happening uh, globally with regards to racism and white supremacy will be grand to hear from uh, our listeners in different spots on the planet. Again, uh, the program still earlier than our normal time, uh, but it will be at 3 p.m. Eastern. 12 noon Pacific tomorrow. It normally uh, it had been coming on a little bit earlier, but uh, there was just no reason for it to be on that early. It was even it was even coming on early that some of our folks outside the states uh, they were still out and about doing things uh, because it was still in the afternoon actually for them. So this will actually make it relatively early in the evening uh, for folks outside the states, at least for most of them. Uh, it'll be pretty early in the day for folks uh, in the states, uh, but. I will be looking forward. I am not a morning person, so we will get started tomorrow again, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, We'll be looking forward to chatting it up tomorrow and speaking with our international cows audience. Uh, And Dr. Rasayan will be with us on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, June 21st, uh, to get his thoughts on some of the many events that have taken place over the past week. We'll be looking forward to hearing from him again this coming Tuesday. Before we get started, uh, as I said, I think uh, just in my opinion, uh, extremely important event, one of the most uh, significant events with regards to white supremacy in the last uh, half century, the white supremacist massacre, terrorist attack, uh, potentially political assassination that took place uh, one year ago, June 17th, 2015 at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. Uh, did not get very much attention, at least in my opinion, if if folks have a different opinion. I know people, uh, it might vary depending on where you are geographically for people that are closer to South Carolina and or people who actually reside in South Carolina. Uh, I'm sure the coverage uh, was different than me being thousands of miles away, but uh, my perception was that because of the events in uh, Orlando, including the alligator attack, uh, the one-year anniversary uh, of Dylan Roof's white supremacist rampage just didn't get very much attention at all. Um, I think uh, certainly uh, just a moment to recognize the loss of life uh, and uh, the significance of this event with regards to white supremacy. Uh, The victims, uh, Cynthia Graham, Heard, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lee Lance, DePayne Middleton Doctor, State Senator, Reverend Clementa C. Pinckney, Tawanza Sanders, Daniel Simmons, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson. 
total disgrace uh, one year ago and uh, hope the victims uh, continue to uh, heal and continue to use this event to try to reveal uh, constructive information about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, uh, and why we should be motivated to solve this problem immediately. In that vein, one of the reports uh, that I did see this week dealing with uh, the event, it was in the New York Times. I think it's linked uh, for people if you uh, check out the description for this program uh, as it's written at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, it should be linked there, and I guess they did uh, some sort of uh, interview uh, with some of the family members of the victims of the attack. Um, they asked them a lot of different questions about racism, about gun control, about forgiveness. I'm not going to read the full uh, article. There were just a few uh, portions of it that I thought were significant enough that I wanted to uh, share. Uh, so they kind of lay out at the beginning... I think this is a white man who's doing the uh, interview. I uh, could be incorrect about that. Michael uh, Schwartz uh, says Michael Schwartz and Chris Dixon are the people that are credited with this report. And it looks like uh, Mr. Schwartz is the one who's asking the victims these questions and they give uh, their responses or what have you. Or I guess apparently it says uh, Mr. Swart, uh, Schwartz uh, and Mr. Dixon uh, that I guess they both contributed in terms of asking questions. Uh, in this response to the people that they were talking to, uh, Felicia and Tyrone Sanders, uh, they are the parents of Tawanza Sanders, uh, who uh, was killed. Uh, he was 26 years old. Uh, Felicia Sanders was present at the shooting, shielding her 11-year-old granddaughter from Dylan Roof. Uh, they also spoke with Polly Shepard, a retired nurse who survived the attack. Uh, the children of Ethel Lance, uh, who was killed, uh, they are the Reverend Sharon Risher. Esther Lance, Nadine Collier, and Gary Washington, and then final, uh, finally Daniel Simmons Jr., uh, who is the son of Reverend Daniel L. Simmons, who was killed. So the first topic they get to, of course, forgiveness. Uh, Schwartz, suspected racist, who's asking the questions. Nadine, you gained some fame and notoriety when you stood up in court during the bond hearing and publicly forgave Dylan Roof. Do you have any regrets about that statement? This first question asked. Nadine Collier, I stand behind it all the way. I don't have no regrets at all. I just believe in God and I didn't have that hatred in my heart. Esther Lance, I don't forgive him because my heart ain't there. I ain't going to be no time soon. I can't forgive him. The Reverend Sharon Risher. Forgiveness is a personal journey for everybody. I have not gotten to that point where I could forgive Dylan Roof. That's just me. Being in clergy, I am mandated to forgive, yet I understand that God is a loving God and that he gives everybody an opportunity to reach that path of forgiveness. Felicia Sanders. Forgiveness is not for the person. The person doesn't care whether you forgive him or not. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is growth. If you don't have any forgiveness in you, it makes you stagnant. You will never grow. You're giving the individual the power over you so that so that means you're still a victim to the person. I want to say that we refuse to be a victim. I want him to know prime 
evil, he's talking about Dylan Roof, I think, to know that just because you took our loved ones, you don't have us. I believe we can get more done now than before. Tyrone Sanders. I want to put on the record that I'm not there yet. I don't know if I'll ever forgive. Uh, so they talk about some other topics. As I said, gun control and a few other issues I'm skipping down. Uh, so Charleston and race. Mr. Schwartz, uh, he asks, uh, the shooting prompted fierce debate over the issue of race in South Carolina and culminated with the removal of the Confederate battle flag from the state house grounds. How has the issue evolved over the last year? Uh, I'm just going to uh, scroll down uh, and read uh, this one response that kind of stood out to me. Uh, this is from Mr. Sanders. He says, uh, if they know who I am, they're a little kinder. This is just talking about random people in Charleston, white people, whomever else. When I went back to work, it seemed like I got a lot of embracing from the white guys. I right, will stop there. Just what we all need. A nice nuzzle hug, warm embrace from a suspected race soldier. Hmm. Uh, and again, uh, I think we talked about this over the week. Um, we had different programs. Uh, the very first topic that they talk about with this incident has been, at least in my observation for the last year, forgiveness. I have not heard that word mentioned one time in any of the articles, television programs, uh, radio broadcasts that I've heard that have been related to the incident that took place in Orlando. I have not heard that word one time. They cannot stop focusing on forgiveness when they talk about Charleston and not even just Dylan Storm Roof, but forgiveness overall and racial reconciliation and, and all this other just total rhetoric and nonsense that typically gets used when it is black people that are just savaged, brutalized, terrorized. Moving forward. Um, James Meredith uh, was mentioned, speaking of terrorism um, I will again encourage folks if you haven't seen it I played uh, segments of it before audio clips, uh, the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on uh, Ole Miss, it's actually called Ghosts of Ole Miss uh, if I get the link uh, you heard the audio segment where they're going to be talking to James Meredith on the uh, local television outlet in the state of Mississippi if I get a link for it where people can watch it online, I will post because I very much would like to hear what he has to say. I am uh, I just have tremendous regard uh for James Meredith. Uh he just is uh an awesome awesome figure uh with regards to uh racism, white supremacy and uh what he has done uh over his life uh, nearly a century uh in working against racism, white supremacy and the interviews that I've uh, heard him give over the years. He is just uh, an extraordinary figure that I would encourage more folks uh, to check out uh, in terms of uh, any, and he would be someone else, even though he's not on the list of the many, 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 many black people, males and females who have killed whites uh, in response to racism, white supremacy. But you did hear him in that audio segment talking about that was all he heard growing up about how uh, numerous family members of his and how many whites they had killed as a result of racism, white supremacy. That would be counter violence uh, but also just uh, the effort that he took the amount of courage uh, at that time he could have been killed easily uh, when he was the first black student that was 
formally recognized at the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, as they say, uh, they were killing whites on that campus at that time in 1962 in response to this one Negro being allowed to their school easily could have killed uh, James Meredith. And he was shot four years after that. He easily could have been killed at any time and just undaunted. I just I think he is just an amazing uh, figure, as they have been saying about Muhammad Ali over the past decades really but certainly over the last few weeks saying uh, Muhammad Ali was a bad man man James Meredith a bad man uh, working against racism white supremacy still a victim problem is still there but wow definitely someone I would encourage folks to check out uh, and perhaps do some research on um, I guess with that I will go ahead and pause we certainly should have time to touch other things there are a few other things that I wanted to uh, comment on I will raise them as we go. Uh, the number again is 641-715-3640 and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could uh, watch the background noise, if you know you are in a noisy environment and you raise your hand, please use your mute button. Uh, you can speak, say whatever you want to say, and then just mute your line. That way we don't pick up if you've got the television on or if you know you're going to be talking to other people in the background or if other people are talking in the background or whatever else is happening. Uh, just use your mute button uh, to help us preserve the quality of the broadcast. Uh, if we could not do metaphors for the compensatory call-in, would really appreciate that. Uh, I do not say this for any other program. It is only the compensatory call-in, and again, I ask this uh, just because it's been my experience that frequently uh, racists and victims of racism uh, use metaphors, and they do not contribute in a constructive manner to clarity, accuracy, better understanding of racism, white supremacy, when we are using words. Uh, I suspect most of the time, deliberately, whites are employing metaphors, analogies, similes, these comparisons that they know are totally incorrect, totally false, and they're doing it to obfuscate what racism is, how it works. They do not want clarity, so they will purposely compare things that are not equivalent, that are not related. I think they do this all the time, and they do it deliberately. I can cite again last week the example uh, when they were talking about the uh, Harambee, the gorilla that was shot at the Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, it's not like the mom was smoking crack. They do that sort of thing all the time, even in terms of what they are comparing and what, in terms of what they want you to associate with things, associating black people with crack on a regular basis. Uh, but I think victims, a lot of times, just in our confusion, uh, we frequently use metaphors where we're trying to articulate our views on racism or counter-racism. I think sometimes it's just we... Uh, don't realize that if you pick metaphors that are not clear, that that can just further make it difficult for people to grasp what you actually mean to say or the point that you're trying to get across. It can make it difficult for people to understand that. I also think sometimes we are trying to make an emphatic statement to demonstrate the strength of our convictions or how strongly we think or feel about something as opposed to us looking for a way to be really emphatic uh, with what it is that we want to stay, really strive for accuracy because uh, it's just been uh, my conclusion consistently uh, that in using metaphors we really compromise being accurate, correct in what it is that we're trying to say. 
that's it. If you could take about five minutes to say whatever you need to say, we should have ample time since we don't have workplace racism on this segment anymore for people to share more than once, probably more than two or three times if you like, if you have other things you would like to get to. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, feel free. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hey, greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. Um, just want to make a quick comment. Um, of course, um, I would I would um, go along with uh, and encourage everybody listening to the program to look at not only James Meredith, but the first black person to integrate USM or try to U- integrate USM the University of Southern Mississippi first and how he was put in prison and all this, all of this stuff. But James Meredith, the reason he was allowed to get there, you know, and with the racist governor, Ross Barnett, um, the, the governor of Mississippi, um, he, he, they basically had to have the national guard, accompany him to school to go there. And so that kind of puts in context, you know, uh, just to go to school, just to go to classes, normal things that you quote unquote normally should have. Um, but the, the other, his story was, uh, James Meredith's story was, was tragic, but that other person, I can't think of what the person's name is that integrated the, or tried to apply to the University of Southern Mississippi. I can't think of what his name is right off, but I, I can remember reading it, and I, I cried reading it. That was just just to get an education. And you know, this was not to, not that that makes it any better, but the person that integrated USM or tried to apply to USM as a black student. He was an older man, and he had a family. He had, not that that makes it any, you know, better or whatever. But I would encourage everybody to read that uh, story also. Um, and that just shows the sheer force of uh, white supremacy, especially in you know Mississippi. Uh, the last thing I want to comment on is this thing about Orlando. You know, Gus had brought up, you know, in the comments talking about Orlando, and um, I saw yesterday uh, that they are planning on, get this, they are planning on doing a song for Orlando, kind of like We Are the World, sorry for the metaphor, but they are doing the the uh, song for those people, and the proceeds from the song are going to uh, put a center LBT Center in Orlando, and get that. That's, I'll, I'll mute my line. Go ahead, everybody. Uh, at least what I saw. Yes, ma'am, I was just going to say really quick, I think uh, the people that are listed online, uh, the first two people at the uh, University of Southern Miss, uh, Gwendolyn Armstrong and uh, Raylani Branch, is that who you were thinking of, or is it somebody else? No, this was a man. It, it happened. Uh, I think it was in the 1950s when he when he applied. Uh, he was actually killed. 
was his, uh, was he in the military? I'm, yeah, I think he served in the military first, but he was an older man. Yeah, I saw, I, yeah. I, I saw that. I saw that on Facebook. That, that, oh, yeah. That whole thing is just hard. I, I can look it up real quickly, but uh, yeah, I, as the as the program progresses, I, I'll look it up and and try to uh, give you an answer on that. Didn't they try to accuse him of a fake crime so they could have a reason to throw him in jail? Oh yeah. yeah, at all times, at all times, you know. Yeah, I remember it, that story. Yeah. Um, well, um, I, I just want to talk about, um, I wish black people didn't always say that we all came over on slave ships because uh, the more majority of us did not come over on slave ships. Um, we, we are the original, and most, most of us are the original Native Americans of this country, but white people want us to be African Americans, so they won't have to give us reparations. They they want us to get reparations from African countries, um, and I, I know there there were a few boatloads of African people that did come over, but uh, I, I don't think the majority of people could have lived for three or four months in the belly of a slave ship. I mean, with with all the the, the waste that people excrete. Uh, from the body, well, I mean, without dying, um, and I just think that's something that's 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 hurting us. Uh, um, I'm I'm not saying the original person did not come from is did not come from Africa, the original person, but I think we are the original people of all the continents and countries that were in existence at the beginning of time. Uh, just like uh, Tasmania, they. Well, they killed all the the black people in Tasmania, the, the black people in New Zealand, Australia, the what they call the, the, the Aborigines and stuff, and and they found statues and and stuff in South America and Mexico of of people with 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 black features, um, and uh, that's why I say we we are the original people, and and for us to keep in saying we're African Americans is wrong. Wrong. When I have to go to a doctor or fill out a piece of paper and they want to know my race, I was I was I was um, circle Native American. Um, they might change it, but I just want to know that I'm not. I, my, my people, as far as I know, my people did not come from Africa. I'm not saying there's nothing nothing wrong with Africa, and I think we should all join together and support each other all all across the globe. But I think we should try to get our facts as straight as possible. And I also want to say all this violence in these communities and stuff, I don't care how much they talk about black-on-black black crime or whatever, I still believe the majority of black, the black people in these, in these inner cities are being killed by white vigilantes or Hispanic or whatever and, and police. And, and or if there's black, if there's so-called black-on-black black crime, I believe that the police are coercing or forcing the other black people to to go out and and murder other black people because that that's that's not our that's not our basic nature as a people and that's all I want to say thank you
Are there other folks that uh, have commentary that we have not heard from, things they wanted to share? Hey, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Good. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to quickly interject. The person's name that I'm talking about is Clyde Kennard. He has a Wikipedia page. On, it's a page for him on Wikipedia also. Awesome. Thank you kindly for getting that information for us. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you guys, to Puff, and uh, all the other callers and the listeners. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of clips, and I also wanted to speak on uh, what the sister just talked about as well. Um, I was thinking of the clip you played about Brazil and when they uh, were asking about uh, why we had mass shootings in the States versus them in Brazil who are very poor and don't have mass shootings, um, I think it's just the psychology of white people. Um, if you study history, there's always been uh, single white men who either personally have done or have orchestrated the murder of tons and tons of people. Whether you look at, you know, King Leopold or Cecil Rhodes or Dylan Roof or um, Charles Manson, it's just, I think, in their DNA to kill. And they kill for the thrill of it. And as a result, um, that's what we actually see. Even if you look at Count Dracula, his name was Vlad the Impaler because he was known to impale hundreds, sometimes thousands of people by shoving stakes through their rectum, and he would leave them hanging on these stakes for months at a time while animals and, and vultures would peck their eyes out and all kinds of stuff. So I just think, um, you know, even if it would go back to mummies, uh, cannibals, and vampires, that episode you had with the author of that book, it just really speaks to the, the culture, the religion of white supremacy and how they, they function as a collective group. Um, I was also going to say a uh, big up to James Meredith as well. Um, and also, um, I forgot the name of the brother that um, Puff was just mentioned, but uh, big up to both of them for black self-respect. And uh, sadly, we lost the brother that Puff was talking about. So um, definitely, I'm, I'm going to listen to the episode again, which I always do anyway, so I can get his name and um, include that on my, on my ancestral space here at home. And I was going to say, in reference to Orlando, um, interesting, I've seen, I've, I've heard uh, two different reports. One I saw on YouTube, the other one I listened to on Black Talk Radio. It was uh, Dark Matter with Ron McQueen. And he talked about uh, first hearing uh, that on the news on CNN that they had had a, uh, I guess, so-called Latino male that was in the club during the shooting who said that, there was someone actually pulling the door shut when they were attempting to escape while the shooter was shooting. And that uh, CNN, like, after he got that sentence out, CNN immediately cut him off and went to, like, some robot that they had that was uh, uh, taking footage around the perimeter of the, the club where the shooting took place. And then he said they never actually continued that particular segment. And then he also talked about hearing that there were up to maybe four shooters in the club um, that that uh, witnesses in the club basically were saying there could have been up to four shooters in the club, but they keep focusing on the one and putting out all this information about him uh, in a singular way. And um, it's just very interesting because when I listened to the news report, and it was from a British news source, and they also said that they heard there were multiple shooters in Britain. So um, 
and they were talking about the reason for it being suppressed had to do with uh, gun control that wanted to take away guns from the citizens and things of that nature, and that if they were to release that there were three other people involved, it would become a terrorist situation, and that would kind of um, kind of not give them the ability to go ahead with the gun control issue, which is what they're trying to push at this point. But it's just very interesting because I thought there might have been more than one shooter, um, as did a, a, a couple of other news sources on uh, Black Talk Radio also discussed the same thing. Um, Scotty Reed said it, as did uh, Tango, who's a former police officer from L.A. So um, it was just interesting to hear this coming out. So I would love to just watch this and see how it develops. And then um, lastly, just to speak on the issue of uh, slavery, um, the sister is absolutely correct. The vast majority of the black people who were enslaved in the States were the original um, indigenous people to the United States and that the first Africans came here um, over 60,000 B.C. Then the what they call the Mongoloid um, invasion, which is the Native Americans that are usually put on display for people to see as far as imagery, they came to, to this part of the world in 12,000 uh, B.C. So she's absolutely right in that regard, and it's really to give uh, um, black people in, this, in America uh, for them to lose their birthright, which is this country. This is where you are from. This is where you've been for over 60,000 years. And the vast majority of people that they brought to the Western Hemisphere from Africa went to South America, which is why Brazil is the most populous nation of black people outside of the African continent on the Western Hemisphere, and then the Caribbean as well. So she's absolutely correct about that. And I just wanted to say thank you for taking my call, and I'll mute my line there. Other folks that we have not heard from, if you all had commentary, feel free. Oh, yeah, guys, can I say one more thing? I totally forgot. Yes, sir. All right, thank you. I just wanted to say first, for anyone who wanted more information about the African origins of the, the black people that were first here, um, there's a great book called The First Americans Were African by David Imhotep that has all of the detail and up-to-date information on that. And then also, if, if anyone would like to look, you can do it on Google. You can look up something called the NOAA, Noah's Webster's Dictionary, and NOAA like Noah in the Bible. Webster's Dictionary is the first dictionary written in the English language in the United States. It's from the late 1800s. And if you look up the term American, what that term meant back then, it actually states that the term American spoke to the aboriginal indigenous copper-skinned people that were found here by Europeans when they came. And it said subsequently the term American was changed to refer to the descendants of Europeans that were born in this country. So they're basically telling you that the people they discovered here were black people. They described them as copper-skinned people, and they were the people who were called American. And then after the whites came and whites brought white supremacy with them, they converted that term to the term that means any white people from Europe born in this country. So they're basically telling you the rules right there in the very first dictionary. You'll never see it in any other dictionary but that. It's called the Noah's Webster's Dictionary, and you can find it by Googling it. Thank you.
Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, we hadn't heard from. Do you all have commentary? Hello? Yes, sir. Can I hear you? Oh, I was just, I had a question. Um, this is my first time ever calling in, but um, I thank you guys for what you do. And then um, the guy that just talked previously, he had two books that he just recommended, I think, but I missed the first one. Can he uh, say that again? Sure. The name of the book was The First Americans Were African. And the author is Dr. David Imhotep. I M I is I M is in Mary H O T is in Tom E P is in Paul. Dr. David Imhotep, and it's called "The First Americans Were African," and it tells the origins of the original Americans that came here 60,000 B.C. that came here from Africa, and and basically the just like the sister was saying. The vast majority of people that were enslaved here were the descendants of those original people who were basically lied to and, and fooled into believing the vast majority of them were kidnapped victims from Africa when those kidnapped victims ended up in South America and the Caribbean for the most part. And only the recalcitrant ones were, were forced to come to the north in order to be broken in a way that they were not able to be broken in the Caribbean and in some cases South America. Okay. Thank you. I got it. No problem. Hey, girls, can I make a quick comment? I reckon. Okay, good deal. Um, does anybody else notice about Brazil how they're starting to add more and more is is more is more being closer compared to black society now, uh, the, where they were trying to contrast at the beginning of this uh, commentary at the beginning of the show, where they are beginning to contrast. You know why aren't there more killings and everything? But they okay okay. I noticed about. Maybe two years ago, they did a story about the crack problem in Brazil in the, in the quote-unquote favelas. Now, this, this report that just came on today uh, says that they have, that they're loosening gun laws or they're changing gun laws some kind of way. And so it's getting, to me, it's getting more and more like the conditions, you know, that black people are, are facing. But uh, just to comment real quick on, you know, why my my conjecture is, you know, why there are no there are no mass shootings and this kind of thing is because to me Brazil is more of a it's a homogeneous society. In other words, everybody may be different shades and everything, but they're just that one culture. In other words, they're you know they have. They might have shades of the same, you know, culture or whatever, Amarillo, uh, Moreno, and all this old stuff, in, in, indigenous people, you know, they come from the rainforest and everything, but they're all one homogeneous culture. The only white people there are, invest, are there for investment, and they don't live in the favelas and, and those type of uh well, you, did you see Fast and the Furious Five? 
uh, the on the Fast and the Furious where they were racing through this neighborhood. That's a favela. And that in those big hills and all that, you know, and uh, you know, Gus has had several reports on, you know, the the uh, the black people, you know, being not being forced to live in favelas, but you know, it's just monetarily they can't afford to live where the where the European, you know, settlements are. The the Europeans have settlements, just like uh, Tom Brady's wife. Uh, this is where she comes from. Uh, those those Nazi criminals that you know were expelled from Germany. You know they have communities in Brazil, and this is where Tom Brady's wife you know comes from, and this type of thing. So uh, for the most part, it's, it's except for those little pockets of of. I'm sure I'm taking a long time, but for the most part, for those little pockets you know, of German communities, it's all one, really one culture, really. And that's why I think there's there's not the mass shootings and that type of thing. Go ahead, Gus. Hang on. Uh, there are other folks that we have not heard from. Uh, you all had commentary you wanted to share. Should be uh, with us. The other, I thought I uh, opened their lineup. I don't know if I made an error. If uh, things are not working on the switchboard, it seemed like there were other people as well who uh, dialed in with a hand up. I don't know if they uh, are waiting to share later. Maybe they have uh, some noise in the background. Um, the uh, or the report that was talking about the new novel, uh, Homegoing, uh, on slavery, is supposed to be something akin to uh, Roots and it's already on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. I had already seen uh, reports about this uh, new book that's written by a black female author, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. I think they mentioned in the report, big review uh, in, the Sunday, in the New York Times this past Sunday, glowing review. Uh, this is great, uh, outstanding writing. Everyone should check this out, read it immediately. Uh, just again, in my opinion, uh, that I think is a part of racism, white supremacy, all of the books that black people uh, write uh, that are about something constructive and trying to share information. Uh, it just seems to me white people have no problem promoting uh, if it's going to be a book or a film or a documentary and it's about black people and bondage, yes, let's put it out. Let's put it on the bestseller list. Let's make sure everybody sees it. Let's make sure it's on PBS and the History Channel and whatever other networks uh, so that people can check it out. Let's make sure it's in all of the mainstream uh, theaters and what have you. To Just to me, that is highly suspicious. And the same exact logic that I said uh, about why I was not interested in seeing Roots, uh, that I'm just suspicious of anything, that white people are really giddy and excited 
uh, about promoting, especially if it's just going to be more images of black people being butchered and in chains and what have you. I'm good. I would put this right up there with the same thing. Uh, now we just finished Roots. Now we got to have another book, and I'm sure they might even be looking since this did so well. So they say. Now we need to make this into a movie. Uh, and then we have the Good Lord Bird that just won all those awards, black author, uh, and that movie is coming out sometime down the road. It's just more and more and more and more. I think all of that is directly connected to the system of white supremacy. They would not be promoting all of this material if they did not have their own agenda as to why. Uh, they are doing it. I think many of uh, those reasons we talked about with regards to Roots and some of the other projects that have come out over the past uh, few years, but I'm greatly uh, suspicious of all of that uh, just because I've seen too much of this uh, stuff get uh, promoted uh, in contrast to other works that black people have done. I don't see them get as excited about it. I don't see them give such a mainstream push and have it on the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC, and other uh, mainstream outlets. folks are lollygagging today. Not sure uh, if I missed or if people are just taking their time in, in terms of chatting. Uh, again, this is uh, compensatory calling. This is not the one to hang out and just spectate uh, the folks that are listening. If you have comments, uh, certainly there was a lot to talk about in terms of the one-year anniversary of Charleston. I don't know if people were paying attention to that. That certainly should be something we have commentary on, uh, that being moved to the side with what happened in Orlando. I am sure people saw lots uh, to discuss uh, with that over the past week, seven days or so, uh, as well as whatever other observations folks might have. If you have commentary, feel free. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I was just, I was thinking about the terms that you're using, um, like forgiveness. And I think forgiveness was a big one. Do it, like if we examine that word, what does it actually mean to forgive somebody? Um, and what is the purpose of it? And then after all this, whatever forgiveness is, what is the result, I guess, of it? I guess that was something that was on my mind earlier. Just a comment. If we ever looked into that. I would encourage folks to uh, revisit Dr. Uh, Frances Cresswells, and she had great commentary about the concept of forgiveness and how racists encourage us uh, to be thinking in that vein, whatever it's supposed to mean uh, in relation to their constant terrorism uh, that is heaped on us and their abuse of us. I thought it was just one of the uh, best segments out of many uh, that she provided for us here on the cows last spring. Uh, and this was before the Charleston incident had happened, but there were so many other incidents, as there always are under the system of white terrorism. There were so many other incidents of black people being abused, but I thought she, I think she devoted about 40 minutes just to talking about that subject matter and emphasizing that as a general and child psychiatrist, forgiveness, that concept is not even something that she dealt with uh, in her practice with her patients. She did not deal with that at all. It was just about you healing and moving forward, and if you get to that point where you want to forgive the person who harms you uh, later on, fine, but that's not something that she even focused on as a psychiatrist. Uh, other folks who uh, dialed in who uh, we have not heard from, if you all had commentary, you should be with us.
May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening to you, Gus, the host, and to all the callers and listeners that's on the line. Just a couple of things. Um, the gentleman that just spoke and was talking about, you know, uh, forgiveness, and then you were saying about um, what Dr. Wellsing, you know, what she had to say about forgiveness, and I can remember hearing that. And, I mean, even lately that I have even been thinking about it, and I was just saying it's, it's, it's just like to me it's something we ought not be willing to do because it seems like it carries power, and it's a negative power to us. It's just like you said earlier. I'm like you, not that I'm keeping up, or not that probably none of us are keeping up with the Orlando situation, but, you know, we're going to hear about it because it's so fresh. I'm like you. I'm not hearing anybody say anything about forgiveness. You know, Anderson Cooper's not going anywhere interviewing anybody, asking about forgiveness and some of the crazy things that, that I've seen that um, he has done with black families, you know. And um, so I, I was just even wondering, thinking about, just forgiveness and that it's just like to me it's a it's a negative spirit for black people. We're the only ones that do it, you know. Um, so, um I just like you say, if he could go back and find that and listen to Dr. Wilson speak about it, because I remember she said it was just not a part it was not a part of her practice. I I remember her saying that and I'm just like, Good because it's definitely thrown in our face and it's just like, you know, oh God, you all should just forgive us and it's just like but you all don't forgive us for anything. And um in terms of this country, you know, people in this country and the indigenous, I get what the young lady is saying, but I think the thing is though, in and just like the young man said too, that if we go back and study this because there's no known history of Really, people being indigenous to this land, it just does. I think there is something about the out of Africa um, theory, if you will. But um, I can remember though reading, and I think if you go back and study that, um, one of Christopher Columbus's navigator was a black man, and they called him John the Black. And I was reading this, and, and the book was based. I can't remember the name of the book. The book was basically saying that. Um, then if you know that that was the case, then that Africans had traveled the world, you know, way before the uh, what we know today is white people or the Europeans, white people. But um, you know, so and and I do understand what you're saying because not all of us came here, you know, in the bottom of a uh, uh, of a slave ship, and I also. Um, I can think of one time. Well, I remember there was a lady listening to um, her on the uh, on YouTube, and her name is Yapa Bay, and she talks. She talks a lot about. I think she's probably part of the group that you know called the Moors, but she talks about words and definitions, and she would talk about various di- dictionaries, and just like when Ross mentioned about the Norse Western dictionary, and if you could find dictionaries. Uh, old dictionaries, and we'd be surprised the definition of words that we use today is nothing like the original definition, because like the word nice, the original definition, I can't remember the exact word, but it's not a good word. So, you know, and if you found out the original definition of the word, you think about how we use the word nice, it's just like it's two totally different words. But she talks about that, too, and she talks about the copper-colored people who are here in this country, you know, way before, you know, Christopher Columbus came. So um, I, I definitely understand what uh, the young lady is saying about that. And, um, you know, it's just, that our, it's just that, and I just 
you know, I'll say this and then I'll mute myself. You know, it's just that, I mean, they, it's, it, I remember one time listening and Dr. Wilson was talking about the things white people have, have done. She said, if I had my chalkboard, she said, I'd give them eight pluses because they've done such a, I hate to say it like this, but they've done such a good job. You know, they've done such a good job in covering up where we come from, you know, you know, just covering up, just destroying. I mean, they've done an excellent job. So, you know, it's hard for us to even trace back, not that we, you know, shouldn't try, but it's hard for us to even trace back to what part of the continent that we come off on. So with that, I'll meet my line. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Other folks that we have not heard from uh, have commentary they wanted to get in as well. Can be heard. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes. Uh, did anyone notice that during the news coverage of the Orlando shooting that they were showing in the news feed? Um, I believe I saw it initially on CNN as well as MSNBC, that they were talking about um, the the shooter uh, had been radicalized online. Had anybody um, seen um, that uh, during the coverage? Um, Because I believe uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was... saying that, um, you know, online terrorism and radicalization has been going on online. They were specifically talking to that. And I'm mentioning that because as of today, it looks like I've been uh, hit up by the gay mafia because I am no longer on my Facebook. Um, I just wanted to see if anybody um, had noticed that on the news. So. I had. I I had heard that too, and I'll just say this too. I have heard that also, and personally myself, I think what we're getting, I think this story, what happened in Orlando, is is just daily and hourly is changing, and they're building the story. I just think that initially what what happened and what we're being told is just two totally different things. But I have heard that. Because um, I, well, I I know who the individual is. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm just wondering. Uh, other folks who uh, had a hand up that we have not heard from, if you all had commentary. Still look like we have some uh, folks who had hands up who I guess maybe they're waiting for down the road to share or what the case is. Uh, I can't say for these uh, types of uh, shooting events, um, it is uh, the loss of life and all that notwithstanding. Um, it's just, it's, it's 
bothersome um, or a major problem for me is it, I think it can be very difficult to ascertain what is accurate in the reporting. Uh, I think on one side, um, it just it really bothers me because I feel like now there are so many of these incidents that people just immediately say, oh, that's a false flag and uh, that's, you know, that didn't happen or what have you. And it's it's not really any substantial evidence behind that claim. I know I've heard that for years now, like as soon as the incident happened, uh, Sandy Hook, I even heard some of that when the Charleston situation happened the situation in Paris last year, both times, I guess, uh, where people, that was the immediate response, but it wasn't like they had done any substantial research to come to the conclusion that, oh, this is just a false flag, or or sometimes it'll even be, it'll just be that didn't happen at all, that they're just making that up, and, you know, nobody died, or there was no shooting, or whatever the case may be. That aspect of it uh, just is really nerve-wracking for me, and then just trying to ascertain what is accurate, what is truthful. I remember when they had the shooting at Aurora, Colorado, they were saying the same thing, that there were multiple shooters uh, in some news outlets. I think they said the same thing at some news outlets. They were saying that there were multiple shooters uh, at the Sandy Hook shooting uh, back in 2012. I did see that this week as well, uh, that there were reports saying that there was more than one shooter, even though that has not been uh, in most of the mainstream coverage. Uh, of this event. But again, I mean, in the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, whites can do a phenomenal job just in terms of not only the the deception, but controlling information, withholding information, uh, even what we think of as quote unquote information uh, in terms of what ends up being the truthful story. If you can put that in quotes as well about uh, what happened and how we think about things. Uh, I know people had already talked about this week. They said he was gay in one report. Then they said he wasn't gay. He was homophobic. They had one report that said he was racist and making all these comments about he didn't like black people and what have you. And then uh, they had another one that said that he went and uh, said he wanted to spare black people's lives because they'd suffered enough like that sort of thing it just i lose interest in even wanting to follow uh when it gets to that point because it's just it's so difficult to ascertain what is what is accurate uh in a whole system that's founded on deception uh if that's clear While we're waiting for other folks, uh, other people, the people that have not spoken at all, if you have a hand up, uh, feel free. While we're waiting on them to comment, uh, anybody else that uh, dialed in, do you all have other commentary you want to get in? Can I make Can I be heard? Oh, go ahead. I'll wait for you. Uh, uh, did someone say something? Or, I mean... Um, no, I said I'll wait for you. Go ahead. You okay, go. thanks. I didn't know if I could be heard or not. I, I'll be real quick. I just want to say what, what you were talking about, about how you can't, you can't trust the news. That, that would happen with that little, that little white boy down in Florida. Some people were saying that when they found his body, his body was in a hole, and he was in the water, and he was drowned. And they saw them alligators, and they didn't find no body, you know, no no, no human flesh inside those alligators, and people were saying that they think maybe the the parents might have drowned the little boy on purpose, or they were trying to get rid of him some kind of way because it said if he had been an alligator, if alligator would have got him in some parts of his body in the alligator, but he his body was was just in the water, 
And, you know, I, I've been hearing different stuff about that, too. So that's all I want to say. Thank you. May I, may I be heard? Or, yes, ma'am. Okay. Well, okay. Just real quick. Um, what you said, Gus, and even what this young lady just said, I agree because I've, I've heard it too. And it is, it's so sad because I, I even kind of thought that with these parents and this child, you know, because it was something about 9.15 at night. And I'm like, Who's out waiting in the room at night? Even though I do know at nine fifteen it is still fairly light outside, and you know, so I, I just, you know, I said let me just, you know, kind of like clear my mind. But I've heard that too about the child being found. Basically, the child was drowned. You know, so the alligator pulls him in the water. But I understand that the child was found whole too. And so it's just like you said, we we really don't know. And, and I, I don't want to sit up here just like with Orlando. And make it like you know, you say false flag. I'm just saying that. I just stay close to myself, and I'm, I don't, I don't have no, no kind of information other than the fact that it's just the media. And I just almost kind of feel that if it ever came out, what we have been told, to what what the true story is, will be something just totally different. I agree with you. You know, I mean, this thing started off with just a club shooting. Now this guy is a part of ice. You know. And, and, and I say all that to say this, and Howard University is getting ready to get rid of their TV station. Ebony has been sold, and it's my understanding this group is supposed to be black-owned, but I, I was listening to something the other night, and it was just saying, question where they get any money because we do know who gives the money, and, you know, who controls the purse, purse strings, excuse me, the purse strings can control the uh, content, the narrative, and everything. And um, I know today, just like we know that, if I'm mistaken, I say the root, uh, the root website is owned by Univision. So the Latinos control what's being said in that thing. I know that uh, Essence Magazine is, is owned by Time Warner, which is now Spectrum, but they haven't been bought out. And I know the Essence Magazine editor or woman who, who you know, gets to, gets to say so and goes in the book is a white woman. And I'm old enough to remember when Essence came out. And I know that this magazine out here today is just nothing compared to what it, what it was. And so when it comes to ownership and media, and that was the painful thing, like I, TV One, where, I, you know, where you sit down and, you know, and get endless rewards of Martin, not the show Martin. But I'm like, here is a vehicle that could be used for black people's news, and yet we be in this reruns of Martin or the Jeffersons of this time or, you know, religious movies, not knocking at. But, you know, and I just think the painful thing is because when we look at what's going on in, in, in you would say, white media, and then hear black people you know, we don't know how many have media. And one thing Claude Anderson said, and I say this, and I'm reading myself, he said, he said you, you don't have media. You don't have a day-to-day day, day paper set like USA Today to tell us what's going on in, with black people. And so now we're sitting around here. All we're getting, we, we get from the outlets, CNN, and we're sitting all they're talking about now is what? Politics. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and maybe you get a little bit of Bernie Sanders. That's all they've been talking about now. With that, I'll meet my line. Thank you. 
Can be heard? Yes, sir. You know, I was thinking about it with all of the um, associations that have been made um, with between black people's struggle and this LBGT struggle. And um, something that you talked about that I've also paid attention to is looking at the timing of things and something, and it's not to take from the deaths of the people who died in, in the tragedy in Orlando because it is, it is horrific. But something about the time of this let, makes me feel that it was done to overshadow South Carolina and also to further allow the LGBT community to kind of piggyback off of and eventually supplant the, the, the black struggle for liberation in this country. And it's, it's really interesting because um, I have Comcast in New Jersey. And normally you'll see they have like a section for black film and television during Black History Month only. And then they'll have the same thing for, during Asian American History Month or Latino History Month so on and so forth. But I just noticed it while I was sitting here that they have black film and television, and it's not February, and also have right beneath the LGBT film and television. So they're basically, again, even in Comcast listing of television programming, they're associating black film and TV by putting it right on top of LGBT film and TV. And this is LGBT History Month. So why should they have anything related to black film and television and it's not black history month? So I just, something about this whole thing is very, very, um, uh, just not, there's something that's just completely off about it. And the other thing I wanted to talk about too was, um, you had brought up the, the OJ Simpson made in America documentary and I was not going to watch it. And somehow I started watching it today and, the I, all I can say is it, the 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 element of racism is literally like an actor in the documentary, like one of the players in the documentary, and it's the main player. And just, I think it's probably the best made documentary on here because it deals so emphatically with racism, and it gives such a profound insight into to me to me oh, just from watching because I've gotten to the third the third. Uh, in, in storm because it's five from total. And, I, and starting with the very first one, literally everything about what motivated OJ to become who he became, including his, his want to be famous and to no longer be black, but to be OJ, was all driven by racism and white supremacy. I n- did not know that his father was homosexual. And there's an um, a interesting play between homosexuality as well and the way that his life is played out and the, and the character of the man that he is. And all of it is presented in such a way that, like, white supremacy is such a focal point throughout every single thing and how it shaped his consciousness and his life and how he has um, performed his, his, his wanting to excel in acting and excel in sports and to be famous. And all of this stuff was driven by white supremacy. Then there's other aspects of his life, including his, his his penchant for womanizing, that also seems to have been driven by his father being a homosexual male. And um, some of the commentary from people who grew up with him is very interesting about their observations on his transformation from being all day the black male from the inner city in the West Coast 
next two weeks coming into this OJ who's completely disassociated himself from his blackness and strove actively to do so. It's, I think it's one of the most profound uh, studies in the mental illness of black people and how we become functionally, functionally mentally ill just due to white supremacy. Um, I, I think it's a really well done treatise on that and if you do get the chance to watch it, I wasn't going to. Somehow I ended up watching it and I'm not um, upset that I did. I've seen quite a few documentaries on him, but I will say this is probably the one that's best has been. Um, I'll say the, the best done one, simply because racism is such a focal point. And I'll meet my life. Thank you. I only I haven't seen that documentary, so I cannot uh, comment. Um, I do know that uh, ESPN, uh, the 30 for 30 series that I mentioned when I was talking about James Meredith, that is in that series. Uh, and I have heard people say that this is the best documentary that they have done in the 30 for 30 series, which is saying something, uh, which is actually saying quite a bit about racism, because most of those documentaries are about racism. So if this is the best one that they've done, that is saying quite a bit. Um, at any rate, uh, I even think that that is significant, that that documentary was released this week the one-year anniversary of the Charleston incident. So you end up with this shooting in Orlando and a new seven-and-a-half-hour O.J. flick on this week. I agree. Um, to have people talking about instead of white terrorist Dylan Stormroof and what happened uh, at Mother Emanuel AME Church. I thought that was no coincidence at all. Would have loved to hear Dr. Welsing's thoughts on that as well, uh, the timing of uh, those incidents, putting things in context. Uh, I also thought it was significant, and if folks had any commentary, uh, feel free. Um, the officer in Florida that uh, is trying to get his job back, I guess he got in trouble for making uh, text messages, calling black people nigger and all the other racist antics that they uh, engage in, uh, where he put his black girlfriend on uh, the stand as a character witness for him. Uh, and they started, alleged, said in the report, they started dating uh, after the charges and everything, after he started having all these problems uh, as a suspected race soldier and practicing white supremacy as a enforcement official. Uh, he put her on the stand. And she said, oh, he's not a racist. You know, he didn't mean all this. And Blase, it reminded me of Christopher Clark, uh, who was on the program this past week from South Africa. Uh, and it also reminded me just uh, I thought it was another instructive opportunity uh, the point, and I think a lot of times when we see incidents uh, like this, the uh, enforcement, uh, the race soldier in this case, Jace, Jason Holding is his name, um, a lot of times where we will focus our frustration on the victim and do a lot of name-calling of her, and, you know, I can't believe her, and she's doing this, and blah, blah, blah. She is a victim. Uh, when I saw this, I think retired firefighter in Florida, he commented about this, and I think several other listeners, when they uh, saw this report over the week, uh, and... Folks will get upset. None of the people I'm mentioning, they weren't upset with her, but I was commenting with the retired firefighter and saying that uh, I just felt bad for her uh, just seeing her when you, I mean, when you understand the gravity of the incorrectness and I would submit the danger of victims of racism who are in this position, even O.J. Simpson being married to a white woman, incorrectness of being in these uh, tragic arrangements. Anything can happen to you. Uh, this black female in this case, man, this guy is sending pictures of black people being killed and black people having dogs uh, sicked on them like we're back in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And this is fun. Violence against black people and black death. This is fun. Hurrah. Woohoo. Look at the Negroes suffer. And now this is who I'm in bed with every day. Not only am I, 
I mean, clearly, I do not have an accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy, and I am in danger. Uh, I'm not saying anybody here, but I would say we should really be careful and that patience with other victims of racism, in my view, really understanding the term victim, why that I use that term, why I think it's significant. Even you heard that in the, the Charleston Post where it's moving away. We don't want to think of ourselves as victim. I just I think that's totally inaccurate. Use the most accurate term. That's what we are. Victims, myself included, I don't think it's anything disempowering. Nothing is more disempowering than confusion about white supremacy, racism, and whites specifically. Nothing is more disempowering than that. And that's what I felt. That's what I saw. And just uh, just incredible sadness uh, seeing her on the stand and the danger that she was in. If this is how he is conducting himself as an enforcement official, I can only imagine what he is doing on his free time with her now uh, in his life. I mean profound sadness that's what i said and that i hope people will not be frustrated name calling her just recognizing that she is a victim and not just her any black person male or female who's in one of these tragic arrangements uh anybody have commentary on that or anything else uh that popped up i guess the oj documentary as well if anybody had comments on that as well actually i was going to say that's exactly what i felt i remember um thomas in new york and i Actually, we had you in on the emails as well. When he actually, he was the first person who showed me the um, clip about that the um, the woman testifying, and I said, "Wow, it's just a profound um, example of like Stockholm syndrome." And like her, and I thought the same thing that you thought. Like, what is he doing in his off time? If that's what he's doing during his workday, you know? And I could imagine the kind of sadomasochistic uh, stuff that she must be exposed to behind closed doors with this guy and the fact that he actually um, got with her after this whole thing blew up the way it did just speaks volumes to his to who and what he is. And it made me think of um, Officer Volpe, who was the, the guy who sodomized Abner Wima. He did the same thing. He played up his black girlfriend in court um, as uh, some proof that he was not a racist when he sodomized this black male with a, a plunger handle. So, yeah, I thought the same thing you thought. I was just like profound victim, and I felt like, like that. everything you said, I just mirror that, and I'll meet my line. Uh, one thing that is another thing that's interesting about uh, the uh, situation is um, the police chief of Fort Lauderdale is a black male, and uh, uh, it's it, so it, it actually makes things complicated for him. Uh, and with the uh, suspected race soldier who's trying to get his job back, uh, it is a history, as I think some of us know, uh, of white males in similar situations. Uh, uh, getting their job back. Uh, it, several incidents like this happened uh, on the job that I was on uh, for similar reasons. Uh, not only did did uh, these individuals, well, in this case, uh, these individuals were uh, demoted and subsequently uh His rank, and uh, as of right now, if he haven't retired, uh, he uh, is back at the rank that he 
was before <coughs> excuse me, the, the problems the, the problem that he caused uh was created so it's it's a you know it's it's very possible very possible he get his job back mhm can i be heard yes sir yes uh, hello mr gus and callers and listeners um i had commentary on the Orlando shooting and also I had a question um, so with the Orlando shooting um, with the Orlando shooting um, the, the mention of ISIS has has been uh, one, one moment I'm sorry the, the, the uh, mention of ISIS has been um, concerning me uh, because I feel that the use of the word ISIS, well, one, um, it's a Greek term for offset, um, a comedic goddess, and it seems like whenever whenever the white supremacists, um, whenever they're using words, uh, they make sure that they use it to where it can encompass a lot of different, um, a lot of different categories or a lot of different things. For instance, a war on ISIS could be a war on um, the people of Kemet, which a lot of the African Americans, a lot of the African Americans would say that we are the Kemites. Um, also, the war on um, ISIS could be the war on non-white people in general, um, just because there's, there's a lot of uh, people who claim to be Muslim uh, who would be uh, considered part of ISIS, and then Muslim would be code word for black or non-white. Uh, and then, so, um, my question was for the use of white. I think that uh, perhaps we could be a little more codified and describe them more accurately. Uh, to my knowledge, each of them are individual uh, members of a albino colony coming out of Europe, and they only became white, like in the 1500s. Um, but some of the definitions of white, the reason I, I say we probably um, should be a little more codified and say something like classified as white, like uh, Dr. Welsing does uh, so often, or uh, when she was alive, um, some of the definitions that I had looked up on the internet back in 2012, um, I, I wanted to read a few. Innocent, without moral impurities, completely fair and honest, without malicious intent, harmless, honorable, decent, dependable, benevolent, generous, Extremely clean, favorable, fortunate, free from color, marked by upright fairness, free from spot or blemish, passionate, and having a fair complexion. And all these definitions um, work in our head to 
whether whether we're conscious or not that they're not actually white, you know, it, it still works in our head to where we we think that they are all these definitions. And if they are these definitions like innocent, then they can't be guilty of anything. It's it's like they put something in our head to where um, they're they're master psychologists and like they're like psychological engineers, and they're using the language to stop our action and stop our thought even before we conceive the thought or even simultaneously as we're conceiving a thought. It's hard to it's hard to fight somebody if they're without moral impurities. Um, and also listening to um, an old Dr. Wilson clip, uh, one that was played on the Cal's radio, um, and she talks about white people uh, being, or the picture of Jesus being uh, betrayed as a, as a white person or a person who classifies as white. And the reason, you know, that's problematic is when we, we talk about definitions, it's not just what's in a dictionary, but it's the way that it, you know, the word is used and also even in the images. So if you associate white with Jesus, then white means Jesus. If you associate white with God, or if there's been an association of white with God within the context of white supremacy, then indeed white means God. And perhaps we should move away from calling them white because it, it, it causes us to, you know, talk about forgiveness of, of a people who are dedicated, as, as your definition, uh, Mr. Gus, that people who are, are dedicated to um, harming, you know, and subjugating, and I say, you know, I say their dedication is to killing uh, black people in particular, and then, you know, non-white people in general. And so my question would be, um, do, you, do you feel that it's logical that uh, perhaps the majority, or we, if we could get a cr critical mass of, of black people referring to the people who are classified as white, something other than, than white, you know, maybe if we describe them as something more, more particular to um, what they actually are. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, they're albinos, which is not a negative thing to be albino, but to the best of my knowledge, they're albinos from a colony out of Europe coming out of the last ice age. And white doesn't really describe that. Perhaps it describes that, you know, they have a lack of melanin. But then if you consider all the other definitions, which uh, work in our heads simultaneously to whatever else we might be thinking, if you consider all the other definitions, um, we think of white people as God. So uh, I'll leave my line. Thank you. Was the question, do I think it would be, I'm paraphrasing, uh, do I think it would be constructive uh, if a critical number of non-white people began to, uh, as opposed to calling them white, calling them albinos? Was that the question, that that would be more constructive in terms of us not thinking of them as gods or uh, morally pure and without fault, uh, us moving to uh, having a better understanding of who they are, what they do, and replacing white supremacy with justice? Was that the question, paraphrasing? Um, yes, sir. The only adjustment I might make is that albino is not, it's not necessary that we all call them albino, but at least if we have that understanding, perhaps if we are codified in saying, um, 
individuals who classify as white, you know, as, as Dr. Wilson has said before. Oh, okay. If that's the question, I think that's that's great. I know Dr. Welsing didn't say that every time. Uh, I think that's uh, on the record. I know just for me, it's a lot to say that every time, although I definitely appreciate the uh, codification aspect. Dr. Welsing certainly used that uh, frequently uh, to make sure it's emphasized, and I think it's also important uh, that it we're not talking about anyone with having quote-unquote white skin because they do not and I do think that that is uh, extremely important just because it's it's incorrect and I think it just promotes an incorrect uh, analysis of the problem uh, and what it is that they're doing it's not that they have white skin or all the other associations that they've made that you've read that they associate with white that's not what it is at all uh, it's just these are people who have classified themselves as white on the basis of we're going to terrorize all the people that we say are not white uh, I think just having that understanding would go a long way I absolutely see the value uh, in using that employing uh, exactly as Dr. Welsing said it uh, individuals who classify themselves as white but it is a lot to say particularly on a radio program that is a lot to say every single time uh, if we're going to reference people as white and as I said Dr. Welsing didn't even do that all the time when referencing uh individuals classified as white. Yes, sir. Good evening, Thomas Smith in New York. Um, I just listened to what the caller said, and I think that he uh, made up a great point. However, the flip, the flip side of that coin is uh, the word black means everything negative, the opposite of white. So why wouldn't we, as a people, try to call ourselves something other than black? It's, it's, as opposed to trying to change what they are. Um, but I, I, I'm totally for, you know, pink people or orange people or yellow people, whatever y'all, you know. But, um, you know, the same flip side, um, the opposite of all those things that he labeled as white is black. And we call ourselves black. And um, maybe we should change what we call ourselves something as great as white. You understand? But then maybe I'll change the way that we interact with each other. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to the clips this evening. I was, um, it was my wife's birthday, so I took that out. But I had, um, I did want to make a quick reference to something I saw in the OJ um, documentary. Yeah, it was a whole uh, transvestite man, transsexual. I don't know if he was went through with the gender operation and everything. But he said he was trying to transcend gender the way that OJ transcended race. And um, somehow saying that um, a famous black person is not um, somehow being affected by the system of racism and white supremacy. And I just thought that was so what white people want to do and also i just thought it was so inaccurate because um oj is in jail now for um nothing because of what happened to him the the trial he got off and um he wouldn't have got off if it wasn't for interjecting the racism white supremacy into his trial so i just felt like that was completely wrong and um other than that the charleston shooting um the anniversary was yesterday um, man, um, it's kind of difficult to contrast it to the shooting that happened in the nightclub the other night um, for the simple fact that this was, I think, a biased crime. The Charleston shooting, this was done because they were black. 
And um, I'm not sure that what was done in the nightclub was because they were homosexuals um, or it was because they were Puerto Rican. Um, I think it was just um, a random act of violence. Um, when you look at it, especially if the person who did it was a homosexual himself, how could that be a hate crime? And I'm just confused as to how come they're not... Well, I'm not confused. I apologize for saying that. I understand that they're not being accurate when they're saying um, some of these things they're saying on TV. And um, I just want to know how other people felt about that. Is this a hate crime? I certainly don't think it's terrorism. Uh, also, with the last caller spoke on, um, I totally get what he was saying about ISIS um, attack. See, I look at it as ever since this ISIS thing popped up, and I'm, I'm commenting on it on the show, um, that there's been a constant attack on the black woman. Um, Sandra Bland, um, Alicia McBride. I mean, it's a long list of the, the lady who was um, attacked by that state trooper in um, California. A whole long list of what we're seeing is women, black women being attacked by law enforcement and white people. And I kind of see that as the, you know, because the, the ISIS is the black woman, you know, and They've been under attack at the same time. And I kind of see a correlation there. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. That was Marlene Pinnock, the uh, black female that was terrorized by the uh, race soldier out in California, highway patrol officer, former highway patrol officer. Quick response, I would, uh, at least my counter-racist observation, I would not uh, support or encourage uh, calling white people if it was pinks, even though I do see a lot of that pinks or whatever other, because I can see how that kind of veers off into uh, name-calling, and uh, I see a lot of that uh, anyway. Uh, Plus, uh, I think it is important, uh, particularly even just talking to other victims of racism, uh, other victims of racism who don't have an understanding of racism, white supremacy, who don't study this at all. I think it's very important. Uh, it's been my experience. If that's how you're referencing whites is you're calling them uh, pink, any names, pinks, crackers, whatever, anything people come up with. Uh, it's been my experience that you do not have a lot of credibility uh, when talking to other victims of racism that you tend to get immediately uh, dismissed as someone who's just, uh, quote unquote, the angry black person, the angry Negro. And, you know, I don't really need to listen to what you're talking about. I really uh, I think it's been my experience that you can be most effective just sounding logical. Uh, I'm not, you know, name calling them. Uh, I'm just presenting factual information. And I'm sure you can make a logical presentation about why you're calling them pinks, but I think just the fact that they don't call themselves that, I think Mr. Fuller says a part of his code is calling people what they want to be called. This is what white people say that they are. We're just going to redefine what that means and how we associate it. I think that's important, having the logic in terms of why Dr. Welsing uh, used the uh, phrase they classify themselves as white. On the black end, I've seen that in terms of black people not classifying themselves as black and picking a whole host of names, probably adding more to it as I am speaking. I have not really seen where that 
removes all of the damage that happens under racism, white supremacy. We can call ourselves anything. We can make up new terms right now. And I just haven't seen where that has a tangible impact uh, with regards to stopping anything that happens in the system of racism, white supremacy. I think there are lots of ex- uh, illustrations, lots of examples of that uh, having been done. And I just haven't seen where it's solved any problems uh, to just say, well, we're not going to classify ourselves as black. We're going to pick uh, a new name. Uh, and it stops Daniel Holtzclaw from doing what he does or any other racists uh, from doing what they do to the people that they say are niggers. I could be in error. Uh, Gus, in, I was thinking in reference to the term white, um, I think the most brilliant usage of white, because we always talk about making the definitions for ourselves or explaining what we mean when we use terms, just like when we use the term racism, you'll always ask the person, what does that mean to you? And then define it for yourself. I think um, one of the greatest examples of how we can accurately use the term uh, white was in 2000 seasons, the way um, uh, I equate our mind equated white with death and all of the, all of the horrible things that black people have experienced under their tyranny. I think that that's the way we should redefine the term. Because in him doing so, he actually was doing what was ancestrally correct according to African spirituality. If you look over all the temples in, in, in uh, the Nile Valley, uh, the color death, the color associated with death was white, which is why you always see in all of the tombs that they're wearing white when they're going through the process of transformation and going through judgment. And what white people did was flip that and made the color death of death associated with black which they got from the Inipu, which is the, the jackal god that does the weighing of the soul against the um, feather of Ma'at. And, of course, that translates into the judicial system with the judges wearing uh, black robes. But ultimately, they, they basically flipped everything um, completely upside down and made black the color of death and white the color of purity. And in African culture, in the ancestral realm, the ancestors always wore white because white was also equated with death. It did have an aspect of purity to it, but ultimately the color of death was white, and that's what was usually worn at funerals, which if you go to traditional African funerals to this day, they still wear white. When I'm going to Europe for funerals, they wore white. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Ashe, Mr. Uh, Arma. I remember that was, I thought, uh, the second time around we did the book study, I thought that was one of the most uh, significant things because I haven't, there's no other book that I've read. I, it, maybe it exists and I just haven't come across it yet, but there's no other work that I've come across where someone has associated white with evil and death. <laughs> he did it for, it was a running motif uh, throughout the book, which I thought was extremely powerful given the subject matter what that book is talking about. But yeah, I completely agree with, uh, with uh, the work 2000 season on mine and his redefining what white is. Yeah. Cause I, and when I speak to, to other um, knowledgeable black people, I call white people Urugu cause I think that's an accurate term. Um, another comedic term is Dutch red, which are red people. Um, so I've used those terms when I'm speaking to, you know, people who I might be doing, speaking to about racism who aren't as knowledgeable, then I'll use just the term white, but I equate white with evil and death. And I just think that's the most brilliant thing because we're basically taking the terms back and using them the way that we're supposed to use them, which is in their proper way, even calling ourselves black. It was our ancestors in the Nile Valley that did so to differentiate ourselves from the invaders that took over what is now considered northern Egypt, which is the Delta region.
that we encountered uh, during the, the the slave trade basically flipped everything upside down and made God the God the devil the devil God black evil and white you know everything wonderful and we've now been forced to adopt that because we've been forced to adopt their languages which are genetically encoded with racism in the DNA of the language everyday words we use we don't realize are basically racist white supremacist words if you use the term credit it's racist. If you use the term buck, it's racist. There's so many words we use every day that we, we, we're not consciously aware, just like the, the brother was saying, you know, using the term white in the way in which it, it's connotated in the, the English dictionary completely confuses the mind. But if you use it accurately for what it is, because everything that, that's associated with death is white, whether it's white rice, white flour, white sugar, white people, cocaine, heroin, you name it, it's all white. Even cancer cells are white. So, I mean, they are cancer in human form. Let's call them what they really are, and let's go back to referring to ourselves as what we refer to ourselves as. Osar or Osiris was called the Lord of the Perfect Black. Black was God. Black was all-encompassing. So let's flip the meaning to what we need it to be and re, re, uh, retake those meanings for ourselves and not go along with what white people have inculcated us with. Hmm. Oh, I did want to make sure I got in just before I forgot if other no. folks have comments. Yes, sir, you can. I just wanted to get in real quick just for Dr. Welsing. I am sure she would have said something about the incident that happened in uh, Orlando and them saying that Omar Mateen was somehow related to ISIS or had some affiliation or he went on social media or he called and said that. I'm pretty sure she would have made sure to emphasize her work, the seminal, the theory of color confrontation the isis papers and saying that she thinks this is a continued effort so that anybody who has that book or is referencing their understanding some of her theories about white supremacy from her work and said oh my gosh you're with you know these crazy people and you know oh my gosh we need to have you know homeland security be checking you out and get you on the terrorist terrorist watch list i am very sure uh, that she would have made sure to emphasize that point as she did uh, at her last uh, lecture at the Welsing Institute. Uh, and I also, I think, a part of that process of just making sure that we uh, counter the contamination around how we think of whites. I think a major part of that is to make sure, identify every time the Dylan Roofs uh, and the Susan Smiths who uh, drowned all of her children, I make sure to identify those individuals as white uh, because it's been my experience that uh, consistently they do not. Uh, they don't want to say, oh, yes, the white Timothy McVeigh, they don't want to do that then. Uh, then they want to leave it out. I make sure to label, insist every time, yes, white Timothy McVeigh or however else, but making sure that that's the association that gets made. Uh, I think that can be very helpful. Uh, I know it has been for me really emphasizing that these were whites who did this. I know uh, there was an article uh, when they were talking about all of the lynchings that happened and how they have been drastically underreported. Uh, when the New York Times talked about this, they did not use the term white den at all. They just made it seem like these lynchings were happening and we don't know who did it. Uh, and some people came behind and did great counter-racist work, I thought, in saying, why aren't we indicting whites for this? White people did this. We should be making that very clear and uh, explicit. I think that goes a long way with reassociating how uh, melanated people think about what it means to be white. I uh, agree emphatically. Thomas Smith, uh, you were going to comment? Um, I was, but I feel it'll be a lost cause, so I won't. Um, but I do want to say one thing. Your line is breaking up a little bit. Your line, your line is breaking up a little bit. 
Uh, I was going to make another comment on the, the black thing, but I see it'll be a lost cause. So I just decided I was going to just make a comment because you brought up the airport security. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, I saw a documentary and um, Muhammad Ali, because of his name being Muhammad Ali, every time he took an international flight, even in the wheelchair, they pulled him into a room and questioned him and, you know, mostly a photo op for the, the TSA agents. But, um, I just felt like that was um, how they treated him his last years or, or ever since 9-11. Um, every time he boarded an airplane with the name Muhammad Ali, um, they put him on an automatic terrorist watch list and he needed to be pulled over, pulled out by the customs agents, the TSA, and be spoken to. Um, and I, that's all I was going to say. Thank you. I thought he transcended race, too. Hmm. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. The, uh, yes, sir. We can hear you. I thought. Did you all just hear the female caller? Did she get her point? Yeah, I, thought, I heard somebody. Oh, okay. I I did hear you. Uh, I thought I said yes, ma'am, and then I didn't hear anymore. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Um, I, I, I understand that after the Orlando shooting, they made uh, uh, sure to tell. The audience, tell people that Assad Shakur was uh, America's uh, number one terrorist, and just like uh, during the, the Boston bombing, after that happened, they also made sure to put on the news that Assad Shakur was uh, the number one terrorist. Um, they they always do that, and also I want to ask that one brother uh, about the book. Uh, it was a dictionary he, he mentioned. It was called North something. I think his name is Roz. Yes, it's um, the Noah's Webster Dictionary. Oh, And you can okay. look it up on Google. It's called the Noah's Webster Dictionary. And then when you put in the search, put in the term American, and it'll give you the full meaning and the fact that they, American meant black people, the term oh. American, and that white people stole that term and ba- basically made it mean white people from Europe who were born in America then were considered Americans from that time moving forward. But prior to that, basically, American meant black people. And oh. those are the ori- original inhabitants of the continent that white people, pe- white people encountered when they first came here. Okay. Thanks a lot. Anytime. All right. uh, our other caller in Florida, do you have commentary? Uh, yes, sir. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just had um, two quick observations. The, the uh, I believe that's the Fort Lauderdale cop. Um, I noticed that in that segment, it's like that, that same pattern where once uh, a, a white person is caught using the word nigger or whatever variation, it's that tendency that 
well, from what they said in the report that, oh, you know, he could have been influenced by working in the urban area, you know, so got to deflect from it being his uh, behavior saying that, you know, basically I've been, um, you know, patrolling black areas. It sounds like that's what they were trying to codify. Um, so, you know, he, it sounded like he was saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a racist before and I'm not a racist now and I won't be a racist in the future. Like I'm paraphrasing, but it sounded like that was him, the, uh, suspected race soldier that was saying that. And, uh, I, I knew like not only just from that one, but whenever in a lot of these, uh, clips, it seems to have that kind of pattern that'll go along with it. Like they can't own up to the label, but they may say what is said is racist, but the person won't be like that word is, is used very um, carefully and being applied to a uh, white person. And I, I wanted to bring up, um, it's like, I've seen a couple of videos where like a non-white person like, if they're telling a story about um, if they're accused of being a racist, they will say, well, you know, you know, this person called me a racist and when I was working in the store today and I was like, but there aren't any white people around. And it seemed like, you know, they'll be, they may be more confused victims, but they'll say, well, you know, I'm black, you know, how can I, how can I be a racist and, uh, you know, I'm an immigrant, you know like a white person is calling a non-white person a racist and then, you know, they get upset. And I just, I just noticed that the non-white person will say, how can I be a racist? There's no white people around. Like, has anybody else noticed that? I haven't. It does make sense, but I haven't, I haven't observed that myself. Me either. I've talked to people who will say that, but they'll be greatly confused. And like when you try and get them to talk about racism, but they will give like an anecdote, like they work in a store and another non-white will call them a racist, but they will say, what are, like this person called me a racist. What are they talking about? I'm black, you know? And I, you know, I caught on to that. And it's not only just people who are classified as black, but I've seen other non-whites go in that same direction. And, you know, one girl said, well, you know, I looked around and there wasn't any white people around. But this person was calling me a racist. And I was like, that, that is interesting. But they won't, they never heard of a, a nearly fuller or something. So, yeah, I, I've noticed that. So that that was all I had. meager understanding of what it means i think a lot of us have you know uh at least a, a minor understanding of what it means to be white uh in this system uh, i think it's just getting a a deeper fuller uh understanding of what that means uh, to really eroding uh what the previous male caller was talking about in terms of just emphasize that this is what it means the individuals who classify themselves as white what that is all about and that it's just terrorizing practicing white supremacy against everyone they say is non-white for sure uh, other folks uh, have commentary uh, we have about I don't know five minutes or so left in the broadcast uh, folks wanted to make sure they had commentary 
Can I be heard? Yes, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, excuse me. So, um, I wanted to talk about uh, what Dr. Welsing had said um, um, close to right before she had passed. Um, she said that if Donald Trump became the president, that it was likely that America will be uh, the next Nazi Germany. And it seemed like she was saying it was more than likely. It seemed like she was saying uh, it's, pro it's um, most probable that America will be uh, the next Nazi Germany. And then um, you know, I studied Nazi Germany when I was a child. Um, and I had to write this long report on it. Well, anyway, um, I found out that, you know, uh, Nazi Germany was about killing black people. That, that was the whole thing. I mean, they got down to the Jews, but that's just because they had black blood in them. And um, I want to emphasize uh, something that uh, uh, Mr. Gus, you emphasize often and uh, has been emphasized by other um, other speakers is that all white people uh, uh, should be considered or should be at least uh, um, you should be suspicious that they are racist. Um, I would say that all white people are racist. It's just their, it's their nature. Uh, like Dr. Wilson even says um, about the um, fear of genetic annihilation, that, that goes down to, you know, a, a, a very genetic level. Um, it goes down to a very basic level, something that I don't know that they could consciously stop being uh, what they are, uh, just as any other animal doesn't stop being that animal just because you change its environment or change its, um, just, or I just don't, I don't feel that there, there are any such thing. There's, a, there's no such thing as a, a white person um, if we, if we're using good, good meaning that, you know, um, they intend some, uh, something healthy for black people. Um, so anyway, my, my question is, if indeed Trump does become president and Dr. Welsing is correct that this will be the next Nazi Germany or is likely to be the next Nazi, Nazi Germany, um, what would you, what would you propose that, um, people do in preparation for this because I'm um, I'm very concerned you know, for my family and and for just life in general you know because um, the, the people who classify as white you know they 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 extinct life they extinct whole genetics of of life you know uh, and they're 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 really serious about you know what they do. And it's it's all of them somehow. I don't I don't really understand how, but they're all on the same page. Um, so anyway, my, my question is, you know, what do we do pr to prepare for that if indeed Trump becomes president? Uh, I'll leave my line. Hmm. Uh, my suggestion would be uh, to uh, make an effort to inform. Uh, at, I would say, I guess, at minimum, uh, the people that you know, like your immediate family, uh, if you. Uh, have children or a partner or you know parents siblings whatever the case may be uh friends that you care about that sort of thing to try to inform as many folks uh as possible 
uh, so that you all can plan and, and take the best steps possible uh, to protect yourself. I'm t- speaking to you, but anybody else. Uh, so you can take the best possible steps to uh, protect yourself, although in the system of white supremacy, uh, the, the evidence of non-white people being able to protect themselves from uh, racist white supremacists, particularly the most powerful white supremacists, uh, it is unpleasant to say the least. Um, and then also uh, to, you know, I, I would think, uh, at minimum, I guess, thinking about relocation, uh, certainly you're not going to be able to go anywhere where you are no longer being impacted by white supremacy, but it might be relatively, and I mean, seriously, put that in quotes, it might be relatively safer on a different part of the plantation uh, for a period of time, if that means going wherever you think might be a safer spot. Uh, for the time being, but I mean, it's nowhere where black people are not subjected to constant terrorism. So uh, even with that, um, but I mean, just I would say just trying to inform as many people as you can, uh, other folks as you can, informing yourself uh, as much as possible. Uh, and then as after you study, whatever preparations you think would be best, if that means being here uh, and just trying to prepare as well as you can, uh, being alert, I would certainly stay uh, staying alert. Uh, just some of the basic things that we can do uh, in terms of being serious and recognizing that this might be a serious amplification in the warfare against black people. Uh, just simple things, having water available, uh, thinking about black people, uh, Hurricane Katrina, um, just being prepared. If you get a, they were getting a warning that something bad potentially could happen, just recognizing that and taking it seriously. Uh, anything that you think would be necessary to have any resources uh, other planning that you would want to make sure that you uh, have done for however bad you think things could be to take that seriously uh, this is a threat that you recognize under uh, your understanding of racism white supremacy to take that seriously uh, and have that reflected in your behavior uh, as much as possible I think that's one of the best things uh, that we can do uh, certainly I would say in terms of the way that we spend money what we purchase uh, and the way we invest our time and energy uh, it should be reflected if all of this is going down then we certainly should not be as concerned uh, about what is going to be coming on television later in the evening or game seven of the finals tomorrow uh, or what cool clothes I'm going to wear when school starts back this autumn. If things are that serious, there would seem to be many, many other things that should be a much higher priority for us uh, to be taken care of, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you. Sure. I would say that again. I know that was something Dr. Wells and Mr. Fuller emphasized. Whatever messages you get uh, from the Creed, even though I, I certainly agree, I, we talked about that, uh, Dr. Welsing's prediction about Donald Trump coming to uh, the White House and what that, the implications of that for black people and certainly her uh, comparing that to uh, Nazi Germany. Um, but certainly I would, I would uh, again emphasize uh, sometimes the creator gives messages and information just to you, you should take that seriously. I think that's one of the things that racism, white supremacy does on a regular basis uh, in terms of uh, just devaluing uh, our self-respect and just encouraging us that, you know, whatever ideas or thoughts that you have are not valuable or they're stupid or they don't make sense, regardless if if it might be a thing where nobody agrees with you. That might happen. I think even Dr. Wellsen talked about sometimes where everybody disagreed. It was like, oh, you're talking crazy. And, you know, this theory of white genetic annihilation is not that that frequently happens to black people, victims of white supremacy. Uh, no problem. Uh, that message might be just for you. Make sure you value it and act accordingly. Uh, if it makes sense and you've uh, done your studies, you've analyzed, it's logical, 
value that. Don't discredit it. Value it and move forward uh, correctly. Because uh, I think a lot of times in the system of white supremacy, we disregard threats until it is too late to do anything. Uh, was there somebody else that was going to comment before we get ready to conclude? Uh, yes, I just wanted to say for everyone who is concerned about just safety and protecting yourself and your loved ones, there's a really good book that I got. It's called uh, Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life by John Hansen. Um, a former CIA officer reveals safety and survival techniques to keep you and your family protected. It's a really good book that deals with situational awareness and preparedness and um, avoidance of potentially volatile or violent situations by understanding the signs and the way human behavior um, is cultivated prior to some sort of event. So I, I found this to be extremely helpful, and he actually has like an online site where he um, does classes and all kinds of stuff, but I think the book is just really insightful and something that uh, black people should read just so they can get uh, an understanding of situational awareness and also just preparedness, everyday preparedness for situations you might encounter, whether it's going to the store or coming to and from work, and you can also help uh, your children and other loved ones um, understand some of these things as well to protect themselves. Thank you. I got that book as well. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, in my uh, in my opinion, it doesn't doesn't really under the system of racist white privilege it doesn't matter on who is president, quote unquote, uh, uh, whether it's a, uh, uh, a Donald Trump or a uh, Hillary Clinton or even a non-white black person, uh, as long as we're under a global system of race racist white supremacy. Uh, my suggestion is is to uh if you one have not uh, already have done uh, adopt uh uh Millie fuller's uh uh four things that non white people should be doing uh uh and that is uh uh cleaning repairing uh and or uh fixing uh something of constructive value exchanging uh, views in a constructive way, uh, uh, sleeping and or eating correctly uh, without uh, uh, sleeping more than is necessary. Uh, and uh, also, I'll, I'll just say for the last part, because it's dealing with the, uh, the, the people activity of sex, uh, have a better control and deliberate control of your sexual uh, encounters. Uh, <laughs> and he uh, he basically suggested uh, no more than twice, uh, no more than twice, uh, I believe, biweekly, and with a minimum amount of, of uh, financial expenditure in order to accomplish the task. Uh, and... Uh, that's something by by applying those four things, uh, basically, kind of takes care of uh, uh, as far as of any type of maximal relationship that you would have with yourself and or with others on a twenty four hour day, seven day a week basis under the global system of racial white supremacy. Matter of fact, it's something we should be doing uh, uh, even after the system has been. Uh, 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 and replaced with a system, a system of justice. 
uh, because it's kind of like quality living, actually, uh, is what I would call it. So, and once again, I would, I would emphasize it, uh, uh, based on what I think is logical. It doesn't matter who is the quote unquote president. Uh, they're going to be president of the global system of racism and white supremacy. That's the only government I know about is actually functioning. Uh, whether the white person or non-white person, whether what name it has, it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, anyway, that's all I have to say on that. Thank you. Right on. That will do it uh, for the broadcast, uh, but we should be here uh, tomorrow, I guess, afternoon, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, as I said, I am looking forward to seeing uh, how a lot of the events over the past week uh, have been discussed outside uh, the United States, as well as some of the things that have been happening uh, worldwide uh, dealing with white supremacy, racism. They even had a, a white female uh, lawmaker in uh, England who was shot and killed this week, uh, and they said the suspected killer uh, was affiliated with some quote-unquote neo-Nazi uh, organization, and they were comparing and contrasting that with what happened uh, this week in Orlando and what have you. Uh, will be interesting to hear what uh, our listeners in the U.K. specifically and then in other parts uh, of the globe, what they have to say about all this. But that'll be tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon uh, Pacific. If you have uh, questions, uh, you can't find something in the archives, guest suggestions, gripes, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com and we will try to uh, help out if you uh, were trying to get the archive of the broadcast yesterday with medical apartheid uh should have been up hours ago um i think there was a slight delay but it's it's up now should have been up for a while if anybody was looking and you were having any trouble uh accessing the broadcast uh, again you can follow us on twitter at until justice at until justice and invest if you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, supported down through the years, seven plus years. I uh, hope the broadcast has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, quick update. Uh, I mentioned Christopher Clark. Uh, I'm only saying uh, suspect to not name call because he is uh, sexually sewering a black female, so he is certainly not a suspect, but uh, the white male, he was on the program uh, Monday uh, joined us live from South Africa and I posted uh, his uh, tacky rant uh, filled with expletives and profanities uh, after he exited uh, the program and listened to the archive. I posted it on my blog. You'll see his first post uh, on the blog. Uh, but after I posted it, uh, and he saw that I, you know, publicized what he had to say. Uh, he continued to write and rant. I'm just not reading the rest of his emails because I'm not, you know, trying to focus that much attention. Uh, but I did think it was uh, significant that he continued in a lot of the same vein with just the name calling and suggesting that black people are racist, too. And a lot of the same things that he said in the letter that I uh, publicized. Uh, but that is to be expected uh, in terms of whites when the refinement 
is lost and they just start to behave tacky, trashy, terroristic. That is exactly what one should expect. Uh, in my view, you might actually be heading in the correct direction in terms of codification and, and applying counter-racist logic, counter-racist speech and how you deal with racist man, racist woman, racist child. That's it. Uh, we should be here tomorrow. I will again encourage. One thing we can do if folks think things are going to be getting more serious and there are going to be more problems uh, for black people, being sober would be a grand move. Really, any time under the system of white, sobri- uh, white supremacy, sobriety should be a top priority. Uh, us being under the influence, intoxicated in no way, shape, form is going to help us solve any problems and frequently just makes it much easier for whites to terrorize us. Definitely, if you're going to be in a vehicle, driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian, you do not want to be inebriated. You never know when it'll be Daniel Holtzclaw, Daniel Pantaleo, who pulls up behind you, uh, and you talk about making it super easy for them to do whatever they want. If that means raping you, if that means taking your life, if that just means, hey, we're just going to arrest you and cost you some time, energy funds, and cause you problems now that you'll have a record for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, sobriety would be best. Let's make great decisions. Really, anytime that we are in contact with whites and or race soldiers, let's make phenomenal uh, decisions so that we can keep ourselves as safe as possible uh, ourselves and anybody that we might be responsible for uh, in the same vein. Buckle up anytime that you are in a vehicle. Uh, let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Uh, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.